Skycast episode 36, a podcast dedicated to all things the 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 6, episode 7, Nevermind. Yes, we will. So, is this, is this it? This is it. Is this the greatest episode of this whole series? Um, it's definitely up there it's for me. It's hard to, it's, I mean, obviously, like, it's hard to choose a favorite. I think it's my favorite out of the season so far. So far, yes, I would have to agree with that. Um, I think either way, no matter how you want to measure it. It was a great episode. was a fantastic episode. Yeah. I mean, what, what an amazing 42 minutes. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. And I mean, they really did do what I'd wanted them to do, which I thought they weren't going to do, which is that it was basically all in Clark's mind. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just a little like the bit last outside. Two minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything about this, the, the from the writing, the conception of it, the writing of it, the execution of it, the sets, all of it was incredible. Um, props to an amazing team all around. Uh, I We have very, very few objections, which we will raise. My main objection is that it wasn't two hours long. That's what I was going <laughs> to say. My main objection was that it felt like it was five minutes. Yeah. Um, I thought when it was over, it was halfway through. So, <laughs> so there's that. Um, okay. So, but before we get into our recap, um, I did want to raise, uh, bring up a point that Alex um, emailed us at uh, skycastcrew at gmail.com about just a general really good point about this season and the flame. Uh, he wrote in, do you think there is going to be an issue if and when the Sanctum people discover Maddie already has a form of the mind drive? Like, I wonder if that could be part of the experiments we saw in the trailer. I'm curious if they will go the route of trying to change or upgrade their mind drives to hold more than one consciousness like the flame, which I thought was such an excellent point, which I had never even considered, which is that she already has hardware in her brain. Um, so, and she's a nightblood. So are they going to try and adapt the flame or what, how do you think they're going to react to this? Um, I mean, I don't think they were ever planning on putting anyone in Maddie's mind because she's too young. No, but so, I mean that they have another they have an, another piece of hardware that they oh, can to take. deal. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. I think that the flame is such a mysterious thing, and if these people couldn't figure out how to create Nightblood in two hundred years, I don't know if they'll figure out how to reconvert the flame into some sort of mind drive to hold more people. And I also don't know if they care enough at this point. Like they have their own mind drives and that seems to be enough. But for they them. just gave away two to Murphy. They did, but they have erased those people. So they they can't get those people back now. Yeah, I guess so. Unless there's somebody they care about that they want to like make into a prime. Sure. Um and also I just think it's an interesting question of like would they be interested in all? I mean, like for me, I don't think that they'd be personally interested in this aspect of holding multiple consciousnesses in a body at once, like the flame allows you to do. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it would raise a question of, you know, experimenting on the flame to see what other secrets it holds. Um, and I think that is probably part of what we see with Maddie's torture scene later on. Yeah, I think it's more likely that they won't even find out about the flame. Um, it's in I think, the back of her head. They have to find it. Well, but if they're not planning on chipping her, then there's no reason for them to like check the back of her head. I really feel like her. it's just going to be more of like stealing her 
her bone marrow. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know what they'll do with the flame if they find it. Yeah. It's just really interesting to think about because I didn't think about that at all. So yeah. thank you, Alex, for emailing us. Um, it came at the perfect time. I literally couldn't focus at work at work, and <laughs> just was delighted by your email. So thank you again. Um, and yeah, please feel free to email us and bother us at any time. Mm-hmm. We love to talk about this stuff. One last thing before we get into the recap, please go rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other fans of The 100 come find us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, so thank you. Please go do that right now. Yes, thanks. <laughs> All right, let's get into the recap. All righty. This could be a long one. We'll see. There's a lot to talk about here. Yeah. Clark wakes up in her cell on the Ark with drawings of her memories (laughs) all over the walls. She leaves the room and finds herself back in the gas station in Shallow Valley, and her father waits for her. Clark is happy to see him, but realizes that this means that she is dead. But her father tells her to listen closely, and Clark hears the sound of her heartbeat. She's alive, but she doesn't know why, and there are no answers for her here with her father. He says he'll be here if she needs him, and Clark leaves. Uh, so first off, let's just start at the beginning with the cell on her arc. I think this is a brilliant set. We kind of mentioned this a little bit at the end of last episode. It's so cool. But it's just such a great idea they had that Clark stores her memories as drawings. Yeah. It's and, very Clark. And drawings, not in a sketchbook, but around her, like yeah. surrounding her. Um, and using pretty much like anything that she can get her hands on to express herself in mm-hmm. this sort of chaotic way yeah and I mean it takes it back to that very first episode when she had drawn all over the walls in her cell yeah um I mean I I love it I think it's very you know it's very like Clark to have find a way to change her surroundings by not accepting what she's been given it's like organized chaos yeah it's (laughs) genius um, and of course, guys, we see Wells here in a memory on the wall uh, for the first time ever, yeah. like ever since he died. <laughs> There's been like one other Wells mention, right? Yeah, but not from Clark. No, not from Clark. Um, and so they actually tried to get the actor to come back. It sounds like this episode. They had a whole scene for him written and the actor was down for it, but they couldn't make it work with uh, the schedules, his schedule on the show's schedule, yeah. which really sucks. And I want to know like where that scene would have fit in with what they have right now. I know. And like, would it have been instead of another person or just like make it, would all the other scenes have just been shorter? Yeah. Um, And would Wells have like been calling her out about not talking about him for the last five seasons, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Wells would be like, excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would like to imagine that he would be at the very beginning. um, Yeah. And that it would be a lot about her guilt um, and like, what he lost and Mm -hmm. like how young he died that seems to fit like the sort of trajectory of this episode um but maybe not maybe he would come in at the end and be like you got to get up like yeah i didn't die for for this like you are living like you're you gotta like maybe instead of drawing after she decides to die it would be like her and wells playing chess like they used to play oh i love that oh so good (laughs) uh we could talk about this all day um, but why do we think it took Clark until Josephine went to sleep to like actually wake up and become conscious again? Well, I think it's because that's when Josephine's consciousness is like dormant or at least less powerful. Um, because we see from the end of this episode that Clark can be awake when Josephine is awake. Yeah. Um, now that she's like, you think now that she's like aware of that it, power? Yeah, I think and especially because what we've seen in this episode that she is slowly learning how to control her mind space in a way that she didn't know how before. Mm -hmm. Now that she has that ability and that skill, I think she's like way more 
conscious to use a you know yeah a word um now that she like has all of that on like knowledge she can use it yeah i i would agree with that yeah um yeah so i wanted to talk about the the first thing clark sees when she wakes up is her home um in shallow valley and her father um and i think every time we encounter a new setting and a new projection we should question why because this is all manifested from clark's subconscious um so it begs the question like why this place and why this person um and i really feel like it's because it's the purest and most complicated things that she has relationship with like she was so at peace in shallow valley with maddie her life was very simple she was a mom and that was it Mm-hmm. Um, and her relationship with her father stopped before anything got complicated in her life. So her idea, her memory of him is very much untainted. And so it makes sense to her that like when she wakes up after this trauma, this is where she would find herself and this is who she would manifest. I at first thought it was odd that they chose to bring back her father here um, just because it feels like we had kind of moved past that trauma in a way um yeah. you know she had made up with her mom about it um it, she it didn't seem to bother her in the same way as it used to um but then you did you know bring up the point to me that her father dying was really the start of the show yeah it was like her first trauma that she ever experienced yeah i i do believe that that's part of it right it's like it's so interesting because the way she thinks about him is this like perfect pure hero figure mm-hmm. in her life but I think the uh, the real emotional association that she has with her dad is trauma. Yeah. He was taken from her. She was thrown in jail. And it was the beginning of the end, really, of all of this. Yeah, it, it was started it, off the chain of events. It was events, the first trauma and of a continued chain of events of trauma. Um, so it makes sense that, I mean, he represents two different things. I think one that she is mentally aware of and the other that she's not so self-aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is, so Clark realizes there's, sorry guys, I'm going to go on like a huge Harry Potter rant this episode. Um, shocker sounds like something different from every other episode. (laughs) Well, I think there's something really special about this and this is not just like me being like, Ooh, this reminds me of Harry Potter. I think that this is actually inspired by and influenced by Harry Potter. Um, because this entire episode takes place in her head which is very much like uh, plat- the platform in book seven. Book seven, um, when Harry is in limbo and Dumbledore comes to see him, and he is, quote, you know, could be a figment of Harry's imagination. So go on, go with me on this because I th- I think there are a lot of similarities here, and I, I don't think it's an accident. Um, but I do love that when Clark realizes what's happening here, and she's questioning her dad, and is like, I, "You're not real," and then he says back to her. I'm not real. I'm a figment of your imagination. I mean, it really feels like that line in Harry Potter right, where Dumbledore tells Harry, why on earth should it mean that it isn't real? Um, it's like it feels so connected. And there are a billion other moments that I'll point out later that I think are, are interesting um, connections here, too. I'm not sure if I believe that they really were inspired by Harry Potter for this, but I do like that sentiment of just because... It's something that, you know, you're creating for yourself doesn't mean that it's not real in some way. Like the emotions are still real there. Yeah, the emotions are valid. And it d- and just because other people aren't um, p- 
privy to what you're experiencing, it doesn't mean that you're not experiencing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is really interesting to me how different parts of Clark's subconscious manifest into different people, um, different traumas that she has, different worries, different fears, um, bring up a different person in her life that she's known at one point. Yeah. And it's cool to like figure out what each person is really representing. Yeah. Because like, even though you know, it, it is real to Clark, they really still are all Clark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's important that we evaluate them based on who she thinks they are and what they actually mean in terms of her own self. Yeah. And we'll talk. Don't worry, guys. We'll get into it. (laughs) (laughs) Clark is now in the mothership. She hears gunshots down the hall behind a red door with the wreath on it. When she returns to her arc cell, she finds Allie waiting for her. Allie reveals that the only reason Clark is still alive is because she has the neural mesh inside her head from when Allie took or when from when she took Allie's chip. Allie shows Clark the memory of how they EMP'd the chip in Raven and makes the memory physical, then gives it to Clark to keep safe because that's the way Clark herself could now be killed. Clark realizes that this place is a repository for her memories, but there's something here that she doesn't know. That red door. Mm. Allie! I was so excited to see Erica Sarah again. And she looks so good. I mean, she always looks great. Um, But I just... This was such a delightful little... Uh, cameo. I was spoiled right before this happened because Erica Sarah's name flashed on the screen. Yeah. And it was literally like three seconds before we I, saw her. I don't her. even think it was three seconds. <laughs> I think it was like Erica Sarah and then it showed Erica Sarah. I, I like saw Erica Sarah. I was like, oh my God, Bray, did you see whose name just popped up? Erica Sarah. And I was, as I was saying, saying that, she Allie was like right there. It was <laughs> so great. Um, I'm so glad she's back for this. I mean, we kept hoping that Allie would make another reappearance. We kept basing a lot of our theories the last couple of seasons on the potential that Allie is still there somewhere. Yeah, we in thought, some way. We thought it was more like there would, would be a piece of her on the mothership or, or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but I do like how they've chosen to keep this plot from season three relevant and how they've chosen to keep Allie relevant and Allie's, you know, goals, um, which at this point in time kind of align with Clark's. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Um, and in, in some ways, you know, Allie is the only quote-unquote person in this episode um, in Clark's head that may exist in some form or another outside of Clark's subconscious. Like, I think yeah. part of Allie is Clark, but another part of her is what's left from Allie's coding in the neural mesh. Yeah, I think she's the residue. So, I mean, besides Josephine and Russell who come and play and co-explain yeah. later, um, I think Allie is the only other entity... Um, that exists that isn't Clark. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, which is really cool to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is really, it's just an awesome twist because throughout season three, I mean, like the entire premise was that the only way that Clark and everybody else could really live was to eradicate Allie from their minds. And now it turns out that that was the only thing that saved Clark, right? It's like Allie's residual coding left in her brain is mm-hmm. the only thing that kept Clark alive. It's just very Harry Potter Voldemort relationship. Neither can live while the other survives. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was cool how, you know, Allie in some ways helped Raven find the um, spaceship mm-hmm. back in, or the rocket back in season four. And Allie is still being useful. <laughs> she is. She's very hard to kill. Yeah. Which I kind of love. No, I love, I mean, like <laughs> she was such a genius character invention. Yeah. Like it would have been a shame for her to have been completely erased just like that I mean I think she's so fun to play with mm-hmm. and they know that um I think in, in a lot of ways the plot of Allie in season three could have been a stronger more well done um story but 
Allie herself as a character was someone we'd never encountered on the show. She's really someone who you it's she's a singular kind of uh, kind of entity. Yeah. Um, and, um well, I was just going to say especially because she's not human, right? I mean, this yeah. perspective on Clark is not she has no humanity in her, which is for an, a for a show that is chock full of humanity. It's brimming over the top with humanity to get a perspective in there that is so clinical um, and, and technical. Yeah. Uh, it's just a really interesting contrast. Yeah. Um, so how do we think the EMP would work with Josie's chip in her head? Like, we know that the EMP affected Raven by erasing the neural mesh, but Raven didn't have any sort of, like, flame-like chip in her. Um, and it does seem like if you electrocuted someone it would also fry any other tech in their brain aside from the neural mesh. Well, considering I brought you up this question to you first, I have no idea what they're planning. Yeah, well, I mean, we know in season three what happened with the neural mesh, and I just have to believe that either one, they would just take Josie's chip out of Clark's head for like a brief moment and shock her, or okay. there's some other reason why, you know, the mind drive specifically wouldn't be affected by yes. this. I mean, I hope they address it, though. Maybe the mind drive is just beyond being affected by, like, electrocution. Why? I don't know. I mean, maybe that it was designed because people can get electrocuted in, like, daily lives. And, yeah, you know, but maybe the chip was designed in some way but to... But, like, if you have a pacemaker in your body and you get electrocuted... Your pacemaker's toast. Yeah, but this is also, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in the future when Allie created this. Or not Allie, when Becca created this. Um, so, I mean, I think technology could have evolved since then. I'm sure, like, I would just be fine with any sort of explanation as to why yeah, this was Yeah, I just affected. want them, I just, like, want a brief passing explanation. Yeah, I'm I not going to, like, push it. I want them to address it yeah. in some way. Um, which I feel like they will. I hope so. I feel like they will. Um, I, I did love Clark's There's No Joy Without Pain, which really just reminds me, I mean, first off, it reminds me of Clark and Allie's interaction at the end of season three. Yeah. Um, and just about like, you, you aren't really you unless you have all of those painful memories because it's the good memories and the bad memories that make you who you are. Um, but it also reminds me of Raven not choosing pain, but choosing life in season four, uh, when Raven is like hallucinating Becca or Allie kind of a mix of both of them on one hand and then um what was her advisor's name oh her Sinclair meant Sinclair yeah and then Sinclair on the other and you know Allie was kind of like the devil and Sinclair was the angel on her shoulder and and just Raven being like also able to accept that pain is a fact of life and you're not supposed to try to get rid of it you're supposed to kind of go through it and be stronger for it on the other side as Clark says you overcome it. Yeah. You overcome pain. Yeah. It's really beautiful that, I mean, and it makes sense that a robot does not understand the yeah. value of pain. Uh, and of course, uh, Jost, not Josephine, Ali says that Clark is keeping her darkest painful memories elsewhere. Um, but it's funny kind of what those memories are because we do see a lot of painful memories here on this wall. I yeah. mean, we see her electrocuting Ali. We see um, Jasper being stabbed. We see there's a lot of stuff that, you know, it's kind of like, I guess it's not her central trauma. So she's okay keeping it here in the, the foreground. Well, we can talk about this a little bit later, too. But I think the, the things that she keeps secret, private, mm-hmm. are more closely associated with things that she is 
either ashamed of or like responsible for yeah. in her own mind. Yeah. Um, so where I mean, you were responsible for shocking Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, but I mean, there's been so many different kinds of traumas that she's experienced and that she could technically be held responsible for. I think there are varying degrees here. Yeah. Um, but it just makes it even that more curious of what those memories, those central memories are that yeah. she does choose. Well, we will get there. Yeah. <laughs> so Clark opens the red door and Josephine comes out. Bum, Josephine bum, bum. realizes that the mind wipe must have failed and that the brain has constructed Clark and Josephine's mind spaces as a way to keep the two brains or the two minds separate. Now that the door is open and the minds are merging, Clark's body will eventually die unless they can remove one of their minds. Josephine isn't going to give up Clark's body, but Clark is also determined not to let herself be erased either. Still, Josephine heads to the room where Clark's memories are stored, and Clark has no choice but to follow. So now is a good time to point out um, that this entire episode plays with focus. Things are in and out of focus and blurry uh, throughout the episode, and I think it's important to pay attention to when things come into focus. Um, For example, when Clark opens her eyes, which is like... uh, you know, could be like reflective of just like, you know, wiping the sleep out of your eyes. But mm-hmm. when she when she does open her eyes in the very first scene, her her surroundings are like soft light filter, but they're very clear. And it's not until she like realizes who her dad is that he comes into focus. Um, and the same thing happens here where her surroundings are very, very blurry. And it's not until Josephine walks through that she's like gets her bearings fully understands where she is and everything suddenly is clearer into focus and things shift constantly this it's not static mm-hmm. um they go back and forth all the time which is a really interesting um reflection of where clark's mind mental state is at all times in this episode yeah i will say i didn't really notice i know that. you didn't but i did <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have two people on this yes, podcast <laughs> it was so good i like this is what i mean just like the d- attention to detail even that mm-hmm. is so good I love that Josephine is really such a different character than anyone we've ever had on the show before. She's a horrible person, but lots of fun. (laughs) She is so fun. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's very, like, delightful. She is fun to, she's a very dynamic character. Yeah. She's very fun to watch. You know, I hate her, but she is a really, really fun addition to the cast. So I, I'm all into it. And she does such a good job. And I like that she's like mildly impressed with Clark throughout this entire episode. Like everything that Clark does, she's kind of like, okay, okay, I, get, I see ya. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for all of her many flaws, I don't think um, internal misogyny is one of them. Yeah. You know, she seems to be very, very um, appreciative of all of the things Clark has done. Even when she was awake and like learning about Clark, she yeah. was like, wow, she's a badass. I wouldn't say it was internalized misogyny that some of the other characters no, keep no, them no. from appreciating her, but um, yeah, maybe it's simply because Josephine doesn't have all those heavy morals weighing her down that she's able to just like see the badassness of Clark. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's very true. Um, and I did want to point out, like, this scene is so juicy because we have the original actor who plays Josephine. What's her name? Um, Sarah. Sarah something. something. I'll look it up. (laughs) Um, and she's like doing such an amazing job with this material, which she has a lot of. And we learned that she was sick on set doing this. So props to her for doing this so well. But it also is just like, you can see how much work that she and Eliza Taylor work together on to to perfect this persona like it's so clear Mm -hmm. 
that this is the same person who was inhabiting Clark's body and the same, you know, obviously this is the same character we met earlier this season. And she's just, she sells this performance so well. Um, it's, it's really an amazing thing to watch. Yeah. And she had so many lines in this episode, like yeah. way more lines than a guest star would usually have. Yeah. And she was sick and she nails them all, you know, she's just brilliant. Um, I did love this one moment. Like Josephine has like, talking to Clark about her former hosts that she inhabited and she calls them average which I just mean the audacity (laughs) to say that like these people died for you I mean and then she goes on to be like oh yeah and I wasn't that obnoxious at 15 I'm like yes you most definitely were slash still are yeah (laughs) yeah that was that's cute Josephine I mean my god her just she's so unself-aware it drives me nuts I mean but digging into kind of the meat of what she said there First off, why on earth would they have tried to put an adult consciousness into a six-month-old baby? You know, like, I mean, aside from the fact that, like, of course a six-month-old baby's mind would not be developed enough to hold an adult consciousness, but also, like, let's just say some wild thing happened and it worked. Would you want an adult consciousness in a six-month-old baby? That is the creepiest thing ever. I know. It's really weird to think about. I'm not sure if they were just so desperate to make sure, like, to see her again. I mean, I think they were, but, but, like, why would they ever even test that? I don't know. It's so disturbing to me. I, I can't even, I don't even want to think about it. I know. <laughs> um, and then it also, this scene supports the fact that they were really raising children for the slaughter. Like there was this girl, her name was Savannah. She was 15. She had a fully developed personality. Um, and we kind of had asked before whether they were actually raising these children and then, you know, killing them essentially, or if these children were somehow like grown in like lab Ta- like tanks bottles. Or yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and this really makes it seem like, no, no, these children were actually born in some way or another and, and grew up to like be people before they killed them so yeah, it's disgusting it is disgusting uh i, I also just josephine is like yeah you know i don't really want to leave your body because the last primes to leave their bodies got erased and it's like bitch by you yeah did you forget <laughs> to leave out that very crucial detail that they 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 went on ice because you murdered them the other primes don't seem keen to murder. Just, just you. you. <laughs> I mean, for centuries, it seems like. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then I love this bit where Clark is like, go float yourself, which is like not in itself is like also a really great callback to just like this one of the show's greatest inventions. Yeah. Um, but like Josephine's like, I don't know what that means. And it's like you study humans like for like fun. Like, I'm pretty sure you can get the context of this without actually knowing what it means. Like, the fact that she comes back to her and she's like, I don't know what that means. She's just, like, you know, not wanting to play Clark's game. Like, she's trying to, like, shove her off her feet. I actually, I thought that was a hilarious quote. It was so great. And I I could see her, you know, like, if she, like, really, really thought about it, I'm sure she could have figured it out. But, like... She's not going to sit here and think about what that insult means, you know? I know. It's like she's not even deigning to give Clark the consideration to, like, have this conversation with her. And I just love, I mean, I love kind of the little moments between Josephine and Clark where they'll use things the other person or people in in terms of Sky Crew don't know. Like, she talked about pennies with uh, Murphy Murphy. and, you know, Clark saying, go float yourself to someone who 
you know, has no idea wasn't on the where earth. that comes from. Um, I, I, I just kind of like seeing the like culture clashes there in yeah. some ways. Yeah, there's a divide and it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, do we believe that Josephine has control over what Russell will do to Clark's people? She says, you know, if you, you know, come up against me, if you don't go away, I'm going to tell my daddy and then he's going to hurt your people. You know, I, I think that Russell will do whatever he needs to do to ensure that Josephine survives. But I don't think that, that Russell is as, as actively as active of a horrible person as Josephine is like Russell I think feels like he is a good person <laughs> yeah well and he he like tries he thinks that he he tries to be a good person. yeah and I just don't see him you know wanting to get revenge on Clark's people in any way just because Josephine says so you know <laughs> I don't know I don't know I don't think so but I, I don't know I mean I'm sure we'll see because at the end of this episode, it does seem like the deal might be off yeah. between them. So yeah. we'll see how Russell reacts going forward. But I feel like Russell has a little bit more control over his own faculties than Josephine might think that he does. I mean, I think she sees herself as having him wrapped around her finger. And in some ways, that's true. But I also think that Russell exists morally outside of Josephine as well. Yeah, I think both those things are true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. Uh, one other thing I wanted to call out is that at the end of this scene, Josie calls Clark selfish and dumb. And I'm just like, wow. First off, how dare? How dare you? Clark is selfish? Clark <laughs> is selfish? You're literally in her body right now. <laughs> I know. But like the fact that you could throw that word around so carelessly is like unbelievable. Yeah. And also like we both know Clark is not dumb. She's just not dumb. So like. This 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 was just got me. I was just like, wow, <laughs> holy shit. Josephine takes in all of Clark's memories drawn on the walls of her cell and notices that one is missing. She realizes that the memory must be important, and she wants to give and she wants Clark to give it to her. Josephine says she's really good at reading people, and her instincts are telling her that Clark has the memory on her because she wants to maintain control. At that, Clark kicks her ass and kills her. Yes, she does. Yeah, she does. But because Josephine's mind drive is constantly backing up her memories, she can't really die in the mind space. But Clark can, and Josephine is going to find out how to kill her one way or another. At that, Clark runs. Whew, what a scene. Yeah. Um, really quickly, there's just another camera technique that they start to use. Well, they didn't start. I mentioned it earlier, but it was very clear in this um, scene how they're using the soft light filter. Everything looks very fuzzy and like not quite like reality, mm -hmm. um, which is just really great. <laughs> uh, so yeah, good on you guys. Yep. Um, so Josephine has already located Clark's triggers, um, emotionally, right? Like she's, she studies humans for a living. She's very good at pointing out or noticing where people's stress points are. So she makes a particular point to describe her relationship with Maddie as a child abuse masquerading as protection, knowing that this is going to get under Clark's skin and rile her up. It's a ploy to manipulate and unbalance Clark. And it kind of works. Well, and I like that Josephine manipulates with the truth. Like, she's not wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, like, that's why she's so formidable, yeah. right? Because she doesn't lie. She doesn't need to. Yeah. She's so smart. She can use your own weaknesses. Like, she can locate your weaknesses and use them against you. Mm. Speaking of Josephine's fascination with insects, first off, 
it really must have served her well on this planet since most of the fauna seems to be like insects and then reptiles. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of get why she would love Sanctum so much. Uh, but also it makes sense as to why she likes Murphy the most out of all of them because he's the cockroach. He's a cockroach. And Clark also is in many ways a cockroach. Um, so I, I get why she respects them. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And it is a trait in sociopaths that they're able to read other people because they see them as things and not people. And it's kind of important for them to be able to mimic what someone with empathy actually acts like. Yeah. And so I, I don't think that Josephine is necessarily a textbook sociopath. Yeah. Even though Clark calls her one in this scene. Yeah. yeah. I, I definitely think she has a lot of sociopathic tendencies. Sure. Um, but... I, I think that there's she's a little bit more complex than just, you know, slapping a label on her, um, which is why she's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. And I think we'll talk about why she's not a classic textbook case a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Has there ever really actually been anything as satisfying as Clark kicking Josephine's ass? No. Like really just like wiping the floor with her. Oh, my God. It was like. A smackdown it, yeah. it was wonderful <laughs> it was great <laughs> bitch you thought <laughs> oh um i also wanted to call out there's a lot of like like um references to the terminator franchise in this episode like there's like these robots that won't die there's all this violence like things like repeat itself over and over again there's this like kind of like bluish filter on everything i don't know it's just like there were a lot of things that spoke to me um that reminded me of the terminator and i wanted to call it out uh like the terminator character or the terminator like the, first movie the movie yeah okay the way that it looks the way that it's shot Actually, it really reminds me of Terminator 2 more than anything. Uh-huh. Um, with, oh, crap. What's the other, what's the other Terminator? The one that's, like, got the silver in the face. Never mind. It's a tangent. You're asking me to name someone. I can't yeah. name anyone. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, it just, it was giving me some Terminator vibes. I thought I'd call it out. They really are, by the way, hammering in that we're back bitches as being a really bad line. And, like, they've made fun of themselves now twice this season. Yeah, they're really ashamed of it. Yeah. <laughs> as they should be. They should. But it was terrible. <laughs> I just love that they're, like, showing that they're ashamed of it by having everyone else make fun of make it fun on of the it. show. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I loved it. Um, and then just to sort of cap off this scene, I think we we can talk this about this a little bit now, is that we now we finally know what the stakes of this episode are, right? Clark's life is on the line. Um, because before this, we were just kind of having like a nice, you know, luxurious like bath in Clark's memories. And now we actually have a timer put on us and it helps build suspense and it makes the pacing of this episode speed up. And it's really, really effective because this this episode is mostly focused on the emotional and internal conflict. There's not a huge plot here. So... This is a great way of building suspense and making this episode feel dynamic and has movement um, and keeps it moving forward with momentum. I just thought it was really well done. Yeah, and I like that, you know, Josephine recognizes that she can't actively kill Clark in her mind because Clark is just stronger than she is. And I'm not just talking about um, mental or uh, like physical strength, although she is like clearly we just saw. But, you know, I don't think that Josephine would be able to like bring a gun into her memory and shoot her because Clark is the kind of person who would be kind of a step ahead of that yeah um in her own mind space and so Josephine plays more of a long game you know and she she knows that she's going to win eventually because she has the upper hand uh literally 
her upper hand (laughs) she has clark's body and clark at this point is like one hair away from just fading away entirely and she just has to like find that one tipping thing that's going to erase clark completely yeah um and i think the the suspense here is that as the viewer i mean we know how fragile clark is mm -hmm. emotionally yeah um, in a way that she does not share with other people, but we know how hard it, this has been for her, and we know how emotionally, you know, exhausted she is. Um, and so there is there is a real threat here mm-hmm. um, that we, as the viewer, are are aware of, and that's why this works so yeah. well. Yeah, the true threat here is not Josephine; it's Clark. It's Clark, herself. <laughs> right? It's it's Clark's ability to to keep give up fighting. on herself. Yeah. yeah. So Clark finds herself inside the bunker pit. Bledrena comes in and says that she understands why Clark wrote Octavia off at the Conclave in Tondi C, but she thought Clark cared about Bellamy. Still leaving him in the pit doesn't show that she cares. Clark argues that Bellamy forgave her, but Octavia says that that's the reason he's not here right now. It's because she can't face him. Josephine finds them, and Clark keeps running. So, loved this scene so much brutal you know because bloodrena is clark's subconscious everything that she's saying to clark is in some ways true to what clark feels deep down sure um so i mean first off do we think that clark herself thinks that she hides while other people fight no i think she thinks this is what octavia thinks of her okay i like that i think that her entire relationship with octavia is defined by what they each believe is what what fighting is and mm-hmm. I think Clark's version of fighting and Octavia's ver- version of fighting are not the same thing yeah and that is a lot of where their like tension comes so this seems very emblematic of what their relationship is and that's like a def- how how Clark defines their relationship yeah, and I sets love it off I love that I hadn't thought about that at all and I, I like the idea that you know Octavia is a very like physical fighter and Clark's a very mental fighter yeah. you know aside, I mean like Clark also has you know physical capabilities sure but first and foremost her main power is her mind yeah um yeah that's that's a great great little bit of analysis there sometimes i can podcast well. <laughs> um <laughs> so it is starting to become very apparent that whoever shows up as a projection is incredibly significant we've t- touched on this a little bit but i am so interested in why it's this version of octavia you know, there have mm-hmm. been, as we have said many times, a whole range of Octavias that she could have picked from. You <laughs> Just know? pick your season. Yeah, it could have been like bratty, rebellious teen season one. It could, could have, have been, been whiny assassin. I was Octavia. just going to say assassin with the hood. It could have, it could have been a lot of di- there's a little lot of different Octavias. So why this one? And personally, I think the reason why Clark manifested Blood Reina is because she has the simplest relationship with her and it's the most antagonistic one whereas like she is very clearly not an ally as blood reina mm-hmm. blood reina is an enemy whereas octavia is something of a mixture of a friend an ally and family that muddies how clark feels about her and the way that octavia feels about clark and as blood reina that everything about that is simplified down to the single point this is an antagonistic relationship and it clarifies things very easily 
Yeah, in many ways, I think Clark feels safe confronting Blood Reina out of all the Octavias. Um, but yeah, I, there's the most distance there. Yeah, but I also think that they showed Blood Reina because, I mean, apparently this scene used to be a lot longer and they had to cut it down. But the purpose of this scene was to show why Clark wasn't facing like Bellamy or Raven or anyone else in her um, friend group currently that is angry at her or she thinks could be angry at her. Um, and with Octavia, with Bloodrena, Bloodrena is kind of the person opposite of Clark that Clark, that represents what Clark did last season. Yeah. Like the, the betrayals that Clark did, it all kind of is what Bloodrena is representing for her, you know, leaving um, Bellamy in the pit and betraying Bloodrena's people in the gorge. Um, and so I think that that is also a reason why she might be manifesting a blood drain specifically. Yeah, I think they're both true. It's really interesting. And when she's talking about, I mean, like, and it, there is a large part of me that is really glad that nobody who's currently alive, a la Raven or Bellamy um, or Murphy, like, showed up in the mind space. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that they they stuck to people who are either deceased or no longer exist like Blood Reina. I think we can agree that yeah. we've moved on from that. Well, I was exciting. It was exciting to have a lot of cameos. It was very exciting to have a lot of cameos. Um, but I love that when they start talking about Bellamy and the heinous act that of Clark's betrayal with him last season, the way she talks about it is like she, her voice cracks and Eliza's, you know, you can see like her throat is getting thick and it's like she is so unprepared to face this in her subconscious that like she can't even talk about it um let alone face it yeah I mean she says like he forgave me but it sounds like she's less confident about that idea than she was you know when he actually did forgive her now that she's facing blood drain now she's like using it as an argument but I think at the same time it's making her think but did he really forgive me yeah I mean I think and we'll talk about this a little bit later with Maya but I think you know blood Reina and Maya function to strip Clark away Kirk's confidence away mm-hmm. and then she we have to see her bolster it back up by the end of this episode so it makes sense that like all these things that Clark thought she was okay with and thought that she had dealt with and um had closure on are not really there she's not as stable ground as she thought it was yeah speaking of Bellamy yeah do we think that Clark is going to reckon with her fears about Bellamy and like what he thinks about her in her mind or is it going to be in person when she's free because we saw in the trailer or heard in the trailer I guess there's still another sound clip of Bellamy being like you called me every day while I was gone but then you left me to die in the fighting pits Mm -hmm. something along those lines that we haven't heard yet and I'm not sure how that kind of quote how that conversation is going to come up do you think it's going to be in her head or outside of her head I don't know there's a part of me that wants it to happen in her head, but a bigger part of me wants it to happen in real life. I personally feel I, I have a hard time figuring out what actually is going to happen. I thought that quote was going to be at some point in this episode yeah. um, when she was like confronting people in her mind. Um, I still think she needs to reckon with herself how she feels about that. And so doing so in her mind you know, through a Bellamy kind of subconscious <laughs> character could be really helpful for her to figure out how she feels about what she did last season. Yeah. I mean, we've we've heard her apologize for it, multiple people, and, you know, heard her talking about how she wants to do better this year, this year, this season. Um, but I, I still think she hasn't completely 
reckoned with herself yet. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and then, of course, what really, really hurts about this scene, and it's what Josephine points out, is that even Clark's own projections hate her, which yeah. deep down means that Clark, in some ways, hates herself. Yeah. Um, it's heavy stuff. And that hurts because I love Clark so much. Yeah. Even with her flaws. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is what Josie's starting to see is like going to be her. I keep calling her Josie. Yeah, Josie, you too. Um, uh, I have an author whose name is Josie and she's delightful. She's well, nothing like this character. But Russell calls her Josie. Yeah, that's so, true. That's yeah. true. Um, maybe I will call her Josie. You'd probably annoy her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is what she's picking up on, right? Is that, uh, like we were saying, Clark's worst enemy is Clark. And the way the, the way to Clark's undoing is through Clark's self-doubt and self-loathing. Yeah. Um, and that's something that Clark's going to have to work on. <laughs> yes, it is. By the end of this episode, <laughs> hopefully. Well, also, I think just throughout this whole well, the rest sure, of the season. Sure, but like we are in imminent danger right yeah. now. <laughs> um, it's so sad that she, I think there are big parts of her that hates what she's done, that hates who she's become, that hates what she's had to do. I don't think she hates herself holistically. Yeah. But I think that she hates a lot of different pieces of herself. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. It makes me really sad. <laughs> this was a hard. This was a hard episode to watch, you guys. I was crying basically from this moment <laughs> onward. <laughs> I think Clark hates the piece of herself that allows her to make these hard decisions that other people can't make. Yeah. Because I think she sees in some ways that that might mean that she has less humanity than they do, which I don't think is true at no, all. No, I don't think it's true at all because it's her really, it's her greatest strength is her ability to endure and to save and to protect against these horrible things. I mean, like other people cannot do what she can do. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a strength that she, it's a, it's a superpower. Yeah. Um, but she just doesn't recognize it that way. Yeah. Clark is now in Dante's cell on Mount Weather. There's a body bag on the bed, and when she opens it up, she finds Maya as she last saw her, covered in radiation burns. Maya wakes up and says that both her death and Jasper's death are on Clark's hands, that Clark does things and other people pay the price. She tells Clark that she's no different from the Primes. Clark suddenly realizes that she has control of her mind, and she pulls out the memory she's hiding and makes it disappear. Um, yeah, so before we get into the meat of this, I just wanted to send out a costume alert um, because the costumes in this episode are really, really important. And this is not just because we opened a can of worms and we're doing the <laughs> costume stuff last weekend. That's totally unrelated, but weirdly coincidental. <laughs> um, so this is the first time I think we notice a significant costume change for Clark. Uh, the first scene we saw her in, she was wearing what she wore in the arc when she was an innocent, which I think makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And she's at peace. And Eden with her dad, she's unguarded. Um, and then the scene when she comes, she's with Josephine, she's wearing her present day look, um, which sort of rings true because that's when she encountered Josephine is mm-hmm. when she looks like this. But now when she's she's um, facing Maya, she's dressed in the outfit she wore when she murdered everybody in Mount Weather, which is obviously on purpose. <laughs> uh, so it's just some really interesting choice costuming choice um and another amazing detail yeah of this show so maya no maya i was really excited to see her i'd been spoiled that she was coming back um but i still really like 
that Maya is in this scene and I love what Maya represents, which is clearly kind of a stand in for all of the innocent people that Clark has inadvertently killed in her drive to save her people. Yeah. The collateral damage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Maya more so than anyone really exemplifies that in Clark's um, past. Sure. And so it was just really great to see her. And honestly, like every single scene in this episode was so good. It was really hard to pick, but I really loved this scene in particular too. Yeah, it was devastating. There's some really hard truths (laughs) that get brought up here. I did want to say one thing I don't like in this scene is they use the phrase off the deep end to discuss Jasper's depression and suicidal thoughts. And that is highly insensitive (laughs) it's very insensitive i don't know if i think it might have been on purpose to like trivialize it in like a way that would irritate yeah clark um whether it was intentional or not it was a choice yeah (laughs) um and we can see here in this scene that deep down clark really believes that she is responsible for jasper's death in some part you know because her projection is saying this yeah do we believe that no, I don't. I, I think, don't believe that. I, I agree with what Clark says, that people make their own choices. Absolutely. You can't force someone to be something that they don't want to be. Right. And so because I think we can you know, unanimously agree that that's not actually valid, that argument, um, it is fascinating then that it's just such an excellent example of the divide in what Clark's perspective on things are versus what really happened, yeah. right? How memory plays with you, how y- memory is not a, um, it's not a verifiable account. Yeah. Um, it's re- unreliable is what I'm trying to say. I and, mean, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, I understand the thought process from Clark about why she would be in some ways responsible for Jasper's death. Sure. Especially as we're connecting all these dots about collateral damage. I mean, it is collateral damage what Mm -hmm. happened to him, but it's not her responsibility. It was a collection of things that happened to him and his choices. Yeah. Um, and it's a tragedy and tragedies don't always, their life is not fair. Tragedies don't make sense. Mm -hmm. They're senseless and they're brutal. Um, and sometimes, Sometimes no one There's is really nobody at fault. to blame. Yeah. Uh, which is also hard to reckon with when you take on responsibility for everyone. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, a side effect of that. Yeah. Um, Maya does say to her at one point, you've killed more people than you've saved. Whew. And that line hit me so hard when it was she like says it. A punch to the gut. It really is. And it's, you know, it's true, but it's not fair, I think, in many ways. Well, um, yeah. I mean, it. none of this is fair. Yeah. It's just something I'd never really thought about before, about how many people Clark has actually killed. And I'm trying to, to like, really think about it. And I'm not totally sure if this is true. I think it's true. You think it's true? I think it's true. Um, and I think right now, the way that she's framing it is, like, Clark had a choice. You know, if you really cared about people, you would remove yourself, remove from, yourself the from the equation. But then if you were in, if you flip that and you go to every single choice that Clark has made and when she's deciding who gets to live and who gets to die is like a God figure, like Maya is pointing out here. The What is the alternative here? Is it death? Like, are you really asking her to, 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 to kill herself and the ones that she loves in order to save these other nameless, faceless people. I mean, 
Maya's the the way Maya contextualizes this is so interesting because it doesn't take into account the emotional strength and um, need for survival that is like inherently baked into humans and the fact that they just they they should live they're not bad and I I also think you know saying that Clark has killed more people than she saved Clark has made a lot of choices. Those choices have ultimately a lot of times resulted in people dying, but Clark is also not making these choices alone. It's not like Clark is lining these people up and killing them. Like there are a lot of people who make choices in this world that like all feed into getting these people killed. Yeah. You know, I just think back to what happened in season two when yeah. Clark killed Maya and the rest of the people in that in that mountain. Um, yes, Clark is the one alongside Bellamy who pulls the lever, so to speak. But Dante and his people all made, I mean, not all of the people, but, you know, the people in charge were all making choices too that resulted in this outcome. Absolutely. Like Clark herself doesn't hold all of the blame for the deaths that have come out of some of the things that she's done. A hundred percent agree. But Clark doesn't. But No, but Clark doesn't see <laughs> yeah, it that way. Yeah. Again, she's her own worst enemy. Um, and then lastly, Maya also says that Clark might like being a savior, um, that she might like playing God. Do we think that she kind of does deep down or maybe that she just worries that she does? I love the way that you framed that because I think it's the latter. Yeah. I think this is like her greatest fear is that she's going to become an irredeemable force and that she's going to start liking these horrible things that Mm -hmm. she's done, that she's going to become a monster. I think that's her greatest fear of of her whole life. Yeah, I definitely think she worries about the subconscious reasons why she does these things. I don't think she knows, you know, that I don't think she like gets joy out of it, but she like worries that she does, which I think is just as powerful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. And it's like, take somebody who's, I mean, think about the, uh, like intelligence it requires to even be, operating on this level Mm -hmm. like she is so complicated and so smart like this character is so well conceptualized it's just I mean I talk about it all the time but the longer this show goes on the higher Clark rises in terms of my favorite characters of all time yeah you know I think honestly like if I really had to think about it there's Hermione and Harry Potter and then there's Clark. I like those are kind of my top two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's it's so hard. Be- there, I mean, could you pick two different characters? Um. I know, and that's why that's why I like couldn't choose one or the other just because they both represent very different kinds of womanhood and femininity and um, morality um, and choice. And I I love the different things that both of those characters bring to their own stories and bring to my own understanding of my own morality you know yeah no I mean she's just a brilliant character and I I think the way they write her is honestly it's a love letter to to the character it's fantastic it's a love letter to her flaws so many times you know throughout we we really see her flaws maybe more so than anyone's highlighted um in really interesting ways and I, I, I love that there is a show that can both hold its main character in such high esteem and also not let her 
like get away without really examining who she is on yeah. a fundamental level. Yeah, they hold her accountable. Yeah. It's amazing. When Josephine comes in, Maya immediately reveals that Clark hid the memory in the cave, and she takes Clark and Josephine there. But when Josephine goes to get the memory, Maya surprises her by placing a shock collar on her that is geotagged to the cave. Clark tells Josephine that she's going to make sure that Josephine loses. Josephine's getting annoyed, and she kills herself with the shock collar so she can start the chase over again, this time with her mind's creation of Russell to help. So this scene is when we really finally start seeing the Clark we all know and love. Yep. The Clark that just, like, takes no shit. Yep. Um, and it was kind of a nice return, you know? Yeah, and there's this such a great line here that she's like, you know, even if I don't win, I don't want you to win either. Yeah. I want to <laughs> ensure that you lose, which is just so powerful. Uh-huh. It's such a great idea, um, and it's so Clark. And this is really, like, Clark's first touchdown of the episode. They... Josephine and Clark are playing a game of chess and it's really fun to watch them maneuver things and see who is gaining ground and losing ground throughout this episode. Um, It's so fascinating to watch between the two of them. Yeah, in many ways they're evenly matched. They're so different and they fight very differently. Yeah. But it's because of that that they're able to kind of get one over on each other and vice versa every other scene, you know? Yeah, they are equally formidable. Um... And I also wanted to point out, it's. I think it's interesting that even in her own mind, Clark is considerate of the of the people around her and the advice that they give her. Um, you know, I know they're all like herself, but there are projections. And I think the way that they function is that they they interact with her and they provide a sounding board, even if it's not uh, like, for example, Maya tells her that, you know, like she's in control, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't think she meant it in a way of like, Clark, you should gain control of the situation and start to, you know, gain some ground here. Yeah. Yeah. Fight back. Exactly. But Clark is conscious is constantly taking in input from others and synthesizing it. And um, uh, and then, you know, improvising from Mm -hmm. what they say around her, which is completely opposite from Josephine. Right. Josephine doesn't listen to anybody she's basically in a vacuum of herself (laughs) she only thinks of herself what and she completely dismisses everything that everyone says around her as as less than um and it's just such a stark contrast between these two characters who i think have some certain similarities but this is one of their glaring differences yeah i like what you said about a sounding board and how a lot of Clark's manifestations, you know, they in some ways are about how she feels about herself, but in other ways, it's like her inner consciousness trying to tell her something and she's not quite able to hear it straight out. Like she still needs that kind of um, impetus to come up with her own thoughts, but like it's all herself. Yeah. But I also think it's because Clark is more comfortable relying on people and having a sense of community Mm -hmm. and relationships with people than she is operating on her own. Absolutely. And I think that's the function that they serve is that you are not alone. You have all of these people throughout your life for good or for worse that make up who you are and who contribute to who you are. And you're not just doing this on your own Um, in a way that Josephine is completely happy existing by herself. Well, and kind of taking that a little bit further, too, is Clark has a community of people in the, mm-hmm. you know, physical world who love her and will risk anything to save her. Like, even though 
they've she has a lot of fights right now going on with a lot of her friends. I think when they find out the truth that she's still in there, they will put away all of their feelings, buckle down, and, like, save this girl. Absolutely. Um, whereas Josephine, I think the only two people who really love and care about her are her parents. And even then, I think her parents deep down recognize that Josephine isn't the same little girl that yeah, they, you know, birthed. She's rotten. I think they, they don't want to see it, but they know. They know. And otherwise, like, yes, Josephine has a lot of people who, quote unquote, you know, worship, worship her, her. But does anyone really like her? And would anybody <laughs> would anyone really fight I mean, her? Well, they would sacrifice. But would anybody put their life on the line to rescue her? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know Probably either. Probably not. Um, Josephine actually kills herself with the shock collar to get out of this bind here, which is just wild. And it honestly... I think goes to show the kind of character that Josephine is, the kind of person that she is. Yeah. Um, but she just doesn't see anything as real or having any sort of consequence. There's no, she doesn't add a value to anything. Mm -hmm. Everything is, is, um, a game to her. Yeah. It's really sick. <laughs> um, so we see Josephine bring in Russell into Clark's mind space and it does feel like the reason they did that because honestly, Russell plays very little role in this episode. Yeah, almost none. The reason they must have done that was just to show that Clark could bring Monty into her mind space. Into Josephine's into mind, Josephine's space. mind yeah. space. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think, you know, this version of Russell is, is different from the Russell in the real world. You know, he's a little more ruthless. He's way more direct. Um, and he's much less sentimental. And I think I'm, what I'm curious is, is this josephine's version of her dad like a wish fulfillment version of her dad or do we think this is what russell's really like when he's unguarded like in his subconscious i think in the same way that all of these people clark manifests are not these people themselves yeah. and what they actually believe it's what clark feels about them and feels about herself and i think for josephine it's the same um way but I also do think that Josephine might know a slightly different version of Russell than we do. Um, I just don't know how much. It, I, I, I still think she sees Russell as more of a tool than even a father. Yeah. You know, I, I think there might be a part of her that loves him. But I don't think it's quite to the same level as maybe she did in her first life. Sure. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And then also one more thing I wanted to add is... They do some really crazy camera tricks when Russell comes in. They, like, start doing these, like, weird, like, um, wheelbarrows with the camera where yeah. they, like, start swirling around and around and around. It's real trippy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are we doing? Yeah, I think what was supposed to happen in this scene, in the following scene, uh, was that Clark was supposed to be running around leading Josephine and Russell into different traps in her mind. Yeah. Um, they said that Pana, the gorilla, they, like, actually filmed the return of Pana. Yeah, I saw um, that, too. And cut it because they, you know, this episode was too long. Thank God, by the way. I, I don't know. I kind of would have liked it. Um, I, I would have seriously. But, so I wonder if there was part of russell's purpose in um her mind that was cut yeah um and because otherwise he just kind of seems i mean like he really is just an extension of josephine josephine might as well just brought another version of herself in there yeah, you know sure um i think you're right and i i definitely think we got some there's things that were cut yeah with him in it so clark runs as josephine and russell give chase Clark avoids the airlock where her father was floated, but Josephine realizes that's exactly where Clark would keep her darkest memories, and so that's where she goes. She finds herself in a dark forest with all of Clark's worst traumas. Clark shows up, 
Josephine reveals that Bellamy had already made a deal with Russell to save her people, and that the very best thing Clark could do for them now is to sacrifice herself. Clark ultimately agrees and gives Josephine the memory of them EMPing Raven. So I gotta hand it to Josephine. You know, she might be kind of evil, definitely problematic in many ways, but she is very smart and her figuring out that this is where Clark would have stashed the memory, the one place that Clark herself wouldn't go. Um, it, it was just, it was, you know, nice job, Josephine. Gotta give it to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've been saying that over and over again. She is a formidable opponent. You know, they are quite evenly matched. Yeah. Um, but this scene, man, this was hard hard to watch oh yeah everything about this was heartbreaking I was a mess <laughs> like you have no idea how hard I, I was crying so hard in this episode. it was it was not a pretty sight um and also I wanted to mention another costume change you know Clark is now sporting her very dramatic look from season three uh coincidentally the season where she was at her lowest point emotionally not a coincidence I think mm. Uh, so just, and not just her season three look, but specifically what she was wearing when, when Lexa was killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good point. And really kind of following after that because she didn't change clothes. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, like when she, when she was at her lowest and when she, when it felt like she, everything had been taken from her. Yeah. Or that she was really responsible for, you know, everything having been taken from her. Yeah. Um, we see here in Clark's little dark space <laughs> that Lexa's throne is there. Uh, Finn's, the stake that Finn was tied to and the knife that Clark used to kill him is there. Uh, Jasper's goggles is there and her father's video is all there as well. Um, so all of her like really terrible traumas, the ones that she might never get over, even the box itself yeah. is from uh, when Clark was realizing that she was totally alone on Earth. She couldn't get into the bunker. Her friends had gone to space and she was looking at the next you know, five plus years completely alone um, and her breaking down over finding that box with Jasper's goggles and his suicide note to Monty. Yeah. Um, so all of these things are kind of the cornerstones of Clark's trauma and they're they're things that I honestly don't think she'll ever truly be able to work through I think she can get past them in some ways but they're always going to be there to haunt her yeah they're they're defining character moments yeah um and I don't mean that as like a character in a book but I mean like your character like who you are your identity um and like Josephine says later in this episode these are the memories that you don't want your shrink to fix (laughs) because they define you yeah you don't you don't exist without them they have redefined who you are as a person and everything that we see here the attention to detail is spectacular um because it all makes perfect sense why they're there Mm -hmm. and I really really appreciate the flashback to Finn's death and that Finn's stake and the knife to kill him is included in this because I think ultimately Finn's true legacy on this show even though he didn't spend a lot of time um you know with us yeah (laughs) and ultimately we don't miss him so much (laughs) Uh, but I think his true legacy is how his death still affects those who love him specifically Clark and Raven um and then you know the loss of Clark's innocence when she killed him yeah you know in some ways I, I like that Lexa is kept alive. Sometimes I wonder if it's a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, but I've also been a little bit, 
unsure about why Finn's death seems to have been forgotten in the show in many ways. Um, I mean, clearly not in this episode, but kind of going backward, it's always Lexa who's brought up and not Finn. And while I think that Clark loved them in different ways, um, I think Finn, having to kill Finn is really a major turning point for Clark as a person. Yeah. I think it was the true loss of her innocence. In a way that I don't think Lexa's death was necessarily a turning point. It no. was more of like a last straw. Yes. <laughs> agreed. Um, but yeah, so I'm glad that Finn's death gets the importance to Clark that it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Josephine really doesn't understand why Clark has the guilt that she carries. As Josephine says, she would have done the same things to save her people. But, like, honestly, who does Josephine consider her people, you know? Yeah, well, we'll get into that in a little bit in Kaylee, in her memory with Kaylee, like, who, and, and Isaac. Who are your people? Yeah. It you're sounds a like party you're, of one. You're your people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Josephine, party of one. <laughs> yeah. It's a good, great point. Great yeah. point. <laughs> uh, also, Josephine's like, have you ever thought about sacrificing yourself? It was like, bitch, watch the end of season How- four. Dare How you? Dare. Unbelievable. <laughs> you have access to all of Clark's. Did you not see her sacrifice herself? The also, though, Clark is always throwing herself into mortal danger I to know. save her I friends. I mean, like, pick, pick a moment. Yeah. You have an entire deck of cards of Clark sacrificing herself. Bitch, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I just don't like Josephine coming. Like, Clark coming after herself for the thing she really did do is one thing, but Josephine coming after her for the thing she didn't do is like, you don't even know, girl. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> um, but it is really devastating. The scene we get here where Clark is really determined to like keep fighting and uh, keep pushing forward until she finds out that Bellamy has made this deal with Russell. And it's like at that point that she sees that Bellamy has in some ways given up on her. Yeah. That she gives up on herself. Absolutely. It's heartbreaking. And honestly, like, I, I mean, I will say I was a little bit surprised that Bellamy gave up on Clark in the way he did. I, I, if, if, if you, for example, if you had your body snatched, my first thought wouldn't be that you were gone. My first thought would be, we're going to figure out how to bring her back no matter what. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I thought it was weird that, like, well, no one on the show. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that would not have been my first. Like, if, for example, if your body got snatched and they said that you're dead, I would fully believe them that you were dead. And oh. I would burn them to the ground. <laughs> Then I hope that if one of us gets our body snatched, it's you. I'm just saying, like, I have no ability to, like, (laughs) I would have been like, oh, yeah, I guess she is dead. And now I have to kill you. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting how Josephine uses what really happened. Like, again, she's using the truth as a manipulation for Clark because she doesn't show how deeply Bellamy is mourning and like devastated at this. He, she just shows this one little moment and I think it downplays Clark's importance to Bellamy. It's downplaying Clark's importance to the rest of her friends. Um, and I think she, she needs their support to like support herself. Yeah. As we've said multiple times yeah. now, she is, you know, she really relies on a community around her and you can see how calculated this move. I mean, like talk about manipulation, Josephine shock collars herself, dies, comes back with this book, knowing that she's going to use this to clinch the deal, right? Yeah. Like this, she's already anticipated what's going to happen. She knows how to get, like you said, that final breaking point. 
and has identified that the breaking point is Bellamy giving up on Clark Mm -hmm. and brings it into this and orchestrates this entire conversation in order to get Clark to give up. Yeah. Which is sick. Um, And to extend the chess game metaphor just a smidge more, if you will allow me, at this point, Josephine thinks she's got checkmate, right? Uh-huh. Like, she 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 thinks she's won. The game is over. She is won. Mm-hmm. But just you wait, Josephine. <laughs> you thought. You thought. <laughs> but you were wrong. Um, another thing I wanted to call out in this scene, uh, Josephine says, memory is a funny thing. It is. It's a fascinating thing. And I've talked a little bit about this already, but I just love the way that this episode is fixated on memory and the way that they they show and demonstrate the power of memory Mm -hmm. and the way that they can be manipulated it's just so well done but also in many ways how memories don't tell the whole story you know they can be manipulated josephine you know using a true memory to show bellamy or to show clark that bellamy has given up on her and you know josephine seeing all of clark's memories different pieces of clark she thinks she knows who clark is but she doesn't it's it's holistically all of those things together that has made Clark what she is and more. Um, And so you can't really just like pinpoint specific memories and think that like that will show you the truth because that isn't necessarily true. Absolutely. Uh, Clark telling Josephine to tell Maddie and the rest of them that she loves them. It's like, that's not going to happen. There is like zero chance that Josephine would go back and be like, so I was talking to Clark in my mind. She just wanted you to know that she loves you. I got her to give up. (laughs) She did want me to pass on a message. She loves you all. She's in a better place. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't see that happening. Um, And I also like that Bellamy and Raven are included as part of the hundred here. Yeah. And I think it goes exactly to your point where Josephine doesn't really know her. Yeah. If she really knew her, then she would know how important Raven and Bellamy are, are to her. And um, and that she would include them as part of her like 100, mm-hmm. and that's the the lock. Um, last note. So Clark has given up in this scene. She's done. She's stopped. Gonna stop fighting. And with that realization, she breaks down sobbing. And then I was sobbing. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought everyone should know. <laughs> I did not cry until what is about to occur next. Yeah, but um, I had like already but drained I, myself of like fluid at this. I was deeply feeling this. Whenever Clark cries, I I feel it, you know. Oh god. But what comes next, we should get to because we should do it right it's now. Really great. <laughs> so Clark is back in the gas station enjoying her last moments of life when she hears the door open and Monty comes in. Monty. Monty. She hugs him, but he is not pleased with her. She's not doing better now. She's just giving up. Sure, it's important to be the good guys, but you can't be good if you let injustices happen and do nothing. Clark isn't sure what to do now. It's too late. Josephine has the memory, but Monty has an idea. So it is really this scene that broke me. Um, I had no idea how much I missed Monty until he like appeared in Clark's darkest moment. Yeah, he's like a beacon of light. And yeah, that that like pure energy that he has is exactly what Clark needed right now. It's exactly what I needed yeah, right now. Yeah, I mean, I we are eternally grateful to Christopher Larkin, who plays Monty, for coming back to do this episode amidst a crazy schedule is what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, he really worked miracles to, to get in this. Yeah. And it is... I think ultimately what makes this episode so fantastic Mm -hmm. is this emotional scene. Um, This is the heart of the episode. So we just appreciate him so much for doing this. Thank you, sir. (laughs) 
Um, so first of all, I wanted to call out Clark seems at peace here. You know, she's drawing, she's in the gas station and she is relieved in a way that she can finally stop fighting. I mean, and I think Monty recognized that, you know, she's exhausted, but he reminds her that, you know, she's not done yet. She has to go back to save her mm-hmm. herself, her friends, the people of Sanctum, very much like Harry has to leave Limbo <laughs> and go back and save everybody. <laughs> From Voldemort. That wasn't in your notes here, so I didn't it see is. that come in. It isn't. Well, I like, literally wrote, like Harry. <laughs> you just slipped it in. Yeah. <laughs> um, Clark is drawing Maddie in the Sanctum schoolyard, which I thought was interesting because Clark tends to draw things that she's seen. Um, and with Maddie, you know, she didn't actually see Maddie going to school. That was after Josephine took control of her body. Yeah. So this is almost like an idealized version of a memory that she'll never have, which is that Maddie is at peace. She's at with people that, you know, her own age that she can care about and make friends with. And she gets to be a child. Um, something that, that Maddie's never really had before. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that helped her get to this point is the idea, the notion that that Maddie would be better off. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a memory, it's a wish. It's, it's a, a wish. wish for Maddie going forward. Yeah, I, that's I a really great liked way of that. It. Um okay, so let's get into this. Why Monty? <laughs> why why Monty here? Um I think for me, I think it's because Clark sees him as the most morally centered and good person in her life so far. And it makes sense that he would be the one that she would manifest to point out all of the flaws in this plan and the negative effects that it will have on her loved ones and then ultimately the people of Sanctum. You know, I think Monty is Clark here. Clark knows all of this, but she needs a she needs to manifest somebody that will point this out to her in a way that she will believe. believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, we've been watching this progression of Clark coming to this realization, you know, through Octavia, through Maya, and now Monty. We have seen... Clark's subconscious working through all of this and you know at the beginning with Octavia you know it was this idea that she was worthless um and Maya you know telling her that the best option is to give up and then Josephine kind of hammering that home and it's not until Monty comes that she has this epiphany that they are wrong Mm -hmm. you know she is not meant to give up she can still fight there is something left for her for herself and for her people um I think it's just, my God, it's so good. This scene was so good. And Monty, so Monty reminds Clark and us that he is not just a pacifist. You know, I think he, in many ways, last season was reduced to pacifism. Um, And I'll get into that in a second. But he doesn't believe in fighting for no reason. But throughout the seasons, he's really, like, stepped up to save people even if it had to mean, you know, hurting or killing others. Like, he helped Clark and Bellamy irradiate the mountain. He killed his own mother to save Octavia. Um, Being the good guys to him means helping people, or really not to him, but to Clark. Yeah. Being the good guys means helping people the best you can, not just being passive. Um, And I kind of forgot that, and I think so did Bellamy and Murphy, too, last episode. You know, I... I'm not sure if this is what Monty would want. I I honestly don't know what Monty had wanted because last season we really saw him stop fighting, even though, you know, his friends were in danger. Um, But he, I think, ultimately wanted his people safe and happy. And Clark 
really trying to do better this season and to work out what that means for her I really think this scene is is her working that out for herself is like not what does do better mean to Monty but what does do better mean to me how do I do better for myself and my people yeah I think that's so well put because I agree that for Monty he does want his people to be safe and he wants them to be whole but he was not able to do the things necessary to keep them that way. Yeah. And Clark was. And again, that's her superpower. Yeah. And this is her working through that to get to this conclusion that she has the inner strength and the resiliency and the endurance to, to keep going and to bear it so that other people don't have to. Um, And yeah, I don't think that this is 100% Monty here. It's Clark filtered through Monty. Um. But it's still brilliant. Yeah, you know, I I think going forward, I hope that there is no more of Clark bearing it so they don't have to. I think in many ways, Clark needs to share the burden. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, not just for herself, but for other people. I, I think they will appreciate more with what they have and be careful more of what they have if they, too, have to share the burden of keeping people safe. Um, and I also feel like you know, maybe let's, let's, let's try to stop making, you know, survival a burden. Let's, you know, stop trying to survive and start trying to live and be the best people that we can be. And, you know, sometimes that might mean making choices that you wish you didn't have to make, but I think that they can still make those choices in a way that they'll, they'll feel good about by the end of the day if what they're trying to do is is to help people yeah. and not just to help themselves but to help you know the greater good yeah which brings me to one of my favorite lines of this episode which is monty telling her that the ends don't justify the means um or in other ways in other words the ends do justify the means i mean i think you can take it in either direction depending on what we're talking about and it's the eternal question of this show you know and monty and clark or Monty Clark seems to have a definitive answer for this. You know, the 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 choice to give up is not acceptable here. Mm-hmm. You know, you you cannot justify what you're doing to to give up on yourself by telling yourself that it's better for everyone else because that's not true. Yeah. Um and I I guess my question is this is this so this is like the quintessential nugget of the show, right? Do the ends justify the means? This is what we are constantly parsing out over and over and over again and are we supposed to now put this question to rest like are we think do we think that this is the show like giving us an answer or do we or, or is this just in the moment and we're meant to continue to ponder this I am having a really hard time I feel like the show is now saying the ends don't justify the means um I don't know if I personally believe that I think that the ends don't always justify the means sure but that's why we have a show. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that there's, you could never have a black and white answer for that question. I think it really just depends on the different situation that you're in um, as to whether, you know, what justifies what. Uh, because I, I don't know. Um, and I, I don't think that we're really meant to know. Um, you know, did Monty himself feel that the ends don't justify the means? Because I, I think he, like I'd mentioned last season, you know, really stopped fighting and and wouldn't help save his friends because that meant more violence and I was not okay with that no I was not okay with the fact that like you would let your friends suffer just because you don't want to fight 
other people and like hurt other people. I like I understand not wanting to hurt people, but I think for me, maybe this is like my Gryffindor coming out, but like fighting to save people is always better than doing nothing. Yeah. And Clark or in Monty here is basically saying like you can't just do nothing. Um, which seems to be kind of at odds with what Monty was like last season. Yeah. Um so again, I, I really do think this is Clark kind of merging her own philosophy with Monty's philosophy in a way and making it something new and something that's just herself, like the kind of do better that she can feel comfortable with. And again, this is a perfect example of the way that she takes in advice from her friends and synthesizes it and improv improvs on it mm-hmm. to make it right for her. Yeah. Um, which we've seen her do this entire episode. Yeah. Such a good scene. Really Oof. such a great scene. Woof. <laughs> Monty and Clark cross into Josephine's mind space, which turns out to be a giant library. They also find the locked room Josephine keeps her darkest memories. As Monty works to unlock the door, Clark views a few of Josephine's latest memories. In one, we see Kaylee kill Josephine, and in another, we see Josephine kill a man who was trying to save a baby that Josephine had sacrificed. Clark realizes that Josephine truly is a monster and that Monty is right. They can't let her win. So there's a lot to unpack here. Yes. Um, (laughs) But I think the most important thing to mention is that, of course, Josephine's mind space is a library. An ugly, dusty, boring, academic, looks like science, volumes of science, books, library with no humanity to it, no life. It is horrible yeah you know I was first off I was curious how much of this set was actually built or how much of the set is like something that exists and then how much of it was computer animated because yeah. there was like that one shot where it looks like the bookshelves go on forever and it really reminded me of the page master <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't seen the page master it's a Macaulay Culkin classic from like 92 everyone should watch it it is great it's generally regarded as one of the worst animated films in history but what? that's fine in what world in many, many I've like literally never met anyone before you who didn't freaking love the Page Master. It is a great film. It's I good. don't. I honestly don't know what Britt's talking about. Ignore her, guys. She has a lot of trauma about that movie apparently because she's scared of cat. Um, I am a scaredy cat, and it was scary, but also it's just bad. No, it was a good film. I'm like, I'm very. This is like a new thing that you're telling me that I'm like shocked by. This is not one of those movies that I would be like you know, watch it even though it's bad because it's enjoyable because it's bad. It was, like, great. It was about this boy learning to, like, find his courage through reading, which is wonderful. Anyway, wow, that was, like, a side (laughs) tangent I did not expect to go on. (laughs) But getting back to this scene, um, this library really does feel like a serial killer's mind space. Like, it is... You know, at the very least, a sociopath's mind space. Just, like, very, very clinical and dry and, like, organized pristinely. And dusty. And I think very it's, dusty. I think it's fascinating how little time she spends, you know, in ruminating, her own, ruminating <laughs> on, in self-awareness and reflection. Yeah. She never <laughs> thinks about her past at all. Yeah. Doesn't care. Um. It's it was a really great set design. Um yeah. and this is such a great concept too. You know that the special collection room is where she keeps her most traumatic and private memories. It just works so well in this in this setting. I think it's perfect. Yeah, it, it just I I loved the like library metaphor that she's got going on here. Yeah, and and the how starkly it con- contrasts with Clark's chaotic very 
you know, yeah, vivid mm-hmm. mind space. Her, her mind space is full of life, and Josephine seems very dead. <laughs> I mean, and Clark's mind space is so dynamic. Yeah. It has all these different things from her past. It's the Delisia ship and the forest and, you know, Eden and the Ark and all of these things that make up who Clark is. And Josephine's mind space is a nondescript library. <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting that Monty has this, like, lock-breaking ability that Monty in real life had but Clark herself doesn't have um, you know he goes to work here on the lock to get into Josephine's special collection uh, but you know since Monty is an extension of Clark I, I thought it was interesting that he's able to do that so I'm wondering if it's like if Clark imagines that he has this quality is that, does he just like have that quality yeah I think like she control he is a manifestation of her mind space and she controls her mind space so she gave him those powers yeah I I just I like that she can like imbue powers outside of her own abilities yeah (laughs) I know it's so great um and it was really really fun to see Monty like up to his old hijacking hijinks again like I just missed him so much yeah like again I didn't realize how much I missed him um and what kind of different perspective he brought to the show until he, he came gone. back this episode no not even when he was gone oh yeah I don't know if I necessarily missed him when he was gone but yeah, it's yeah. almost like I miss him more now that he came back this episode than I did before yeah I see what you're saying yeah I think you're right um so let's jump into Josephine's memories the uh, first memory the yeah. first memory that we see is her in her previous body painting herself again like, what a narcissist. And not only that, but, like, she's drinking a juice named after herself. Yeah. Like, the megalomania at display here is unbelievable. <laughs> it's just astonishing. <laughs> it's astonishing. <laughs> and I'm just, like, side note, why is Josephine always blonde? Like, I'm kind of wondering if this is, like, a visual cue for the viewers so that we can always recognize her. Like, she ha- always has, seems to have, like, the same kind of, like, facial features and hair color. Yeah. Well, um, I think with um, her first body and then this, you know, seventh body or whatever yeah. she's in, I can see the same kind of facial features. With Clark, I don't think Clark looks like either of these well, people Well, Clark at is all. the exception, clearly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this episode really did make me feel a lot more sympathy toward Kaylee. You know, I didn't, like, dislike Kaylee, really, but I found her, like, slightly annoying in the early episodes, and sure. I honestly, like, didn't miss her when she died. Um, but we see here kind of a different side of Kaylee, especially with its Kaylee juxtapo- juxtaposed against uh, Josephine. Do we think that Kaylee always had kind of a more tempered idea about their existence and about the Knowles than Josephine did or was it Isaac who made her see the error in their ways well I think that nobody is as is as extreme as Josephine period yeah. like full stop I'm sure that they went along with it because it was a means to an end uh to you know just jump yeah. right back into that question <laughs> um but I'm sure Kaylee doesn't seem to be somebody who's as passionate as Josephine is. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that made her much more susceptible when she did fall in love with someone who is not a prime to see the error of their ways. Yeah. Speaking of which, how did they fall in love? I have no like, idea. Like, was he maybe her bodyguard? Oh, because no. I am into that. <laughs> There's a fanfic at play. <laughs> I can see it starting to take root. Um, but, you know, talking about... Kaylee and and what Kaylee's true personality was um Josephine did say in the scene that 
Kaylee helped Josephine spread the word about ablation. And, you know, now she's sounding like Riker, which I'll get to the Riker thing in a second. But I think you're right in that Kaylee probably in many ways idealized Josephine before Isaac made her see the truth about what Josephine really was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were in one way or another best friends. Uh, and so they had to have liked each other at one point, or at least Kaylee had to have liked her. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that Kaylee didn't have very, like maybe her mind isn't quite as strong as some of the other people's are. And she's easier. It's easier to manipulate her and to kind of lead her in a different direction. And when she met Isaac, you know, he was really able to put his own ideas into her head and she's kind of like swayed to this side. Yeah. Well, I think she's soft. She's definitely softer. And I think instead of maybe saying that, that, uh, Isaac put his own ideas into her mind, I think maybe he just opened her eyes. Yeah. That's Um, a very kind way of thinking of it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm, like, way more sympathetic to Kaylee now than I was yeah, before this episode. For sure. So I will be generous. I'm like, yeah, Kaylee, kill her. Like, She's I like, get it. I'm going to, so that nobody knows that I'm throwing you <laughs> off the balcony. Um, I understand, Kaylee. I yeah, understand. We get it. I'm, I'm with you, girl. Uh, but Josephine also does say that Kayleen's not sounding, Kaylee is now sounding like Riker. Um, so clearly Riker has held these ideals that maybe the way they do things isn't quite right or that they should have more respect for the people whose bodies they steal, people who they murder, basically. Um, and he's had these ideals for a while now. But I also think kind of, you know, tying into what I was saying about Monty last episode or last scene is that it doesn't matter if he doesn't do anything, if he's not stopping what's happening you yeah. know and I, I feel the same way about Raven maybe that is my biggest um complaint with Raven is not you know her anger at Clark which I understand it's not the things that she's done which I also understand it's the things that she doesn't do and let's happen yeah. that really bother me yeah um and so honestly like Raven and, and Riker are kind of a pair. <laughs> they are. I, I ship them so hard. I and I and I and I think like, you know, this little nugget that they dropped about Riker is not a coincidence. No. Like this is very, very on purpose to show us that he is by far the most sympathetic prime that we've yeah. got and our key into undoing them. Mm-hmm. And has, you know, the most hope for redemption, I think. Yeah. Um yeah. Um, is Josephine, this is kind of like an overarching question. Is Josephine the most classically evil villain that we've faced in this show? A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can attach morality to a natural disaster. So yes. I mean, I will say Dante's son, whose name I can't remember. Yeah. What was his name? He was a real dick. He was a, not a good person. Um, but Josephine's killing babies so yeah you can't I mean, really get past that right and I, th- I think it's funny in the context of a, of a season that is br- constantly bringing up like world terrorists mm-hmm. like if you want to talk about a terror like a, a Hitler type of character I'm pretty sure that Josephine is the closest we're gonna get I mean when you bring in eugenics it's kind of like eugenics yeah. <laughs> murdering of innocent babies I, I like this has got like the holocaust written all over it it's it's genocide in a way it's and not, disgusting yeah not just like murdering of babies but like torture of torture. babies because she's letting the trees murder the baby which we know from having seen that guy last episode that it is a very painful death it's unthinkable unconscionable um and i think it's interesting that you know kaylee asks her you know what 
what, you know, Josephine gets angry that Kaylee is like not paying attention to her people and instead focusing on the Knowles or the, mm-hmm. the regular people. And, you know, Kaylee counters like, who is your people? Um, which we talked about a little bit before. And I think it's funny because I don't think Josephine actually cares about anybody, primes or otherwise. I think she really just cares about herself. And yeah. And her immortality. And the fact is, Isaac is threatening that. And mm-hmm. that's what she cares about. This has nothing to do with the primes and saving them and all of that. This is really just, like, selfishness in its purest form. Well, this has something to do with the primes. It's about saving her. Well, I know, but she doesn't <laughs> care about the other primes. No, she doesn't. She only cares about her as yeah. a prime. Yep. Yeah. Um. So... Was Isaac giving a bunch of babies to Gabriel or was like this the first one he was going to take? Like how many babies, number one, is Josephine sacrificing? Is this a common thing? Seems um, pretty common. And for what? Like is this like a baby that Knowles had illegally or, you know, like w- what What about this baby is, is saying is making her think that it needs to be sacrificed? Yeah. She clearly can't sacrifice every baby because they have to grow the population in some way or another. Well, like, I think we were talking offline a little bit. Maybe some people are born without any genetic marker for carrying yeah. um, night blood. Yeah. And that was so, my thought. So maybe if they are tested and it turns out that they have no ability to, to prolificate the night blood gene, then they are diluting the, the bloodline and the population and they yeah. need to be sacrificed. My thought was, you know... Maybe it was that gene that they didn't have. Um, and is there a middle class in this society? Because I don't think it makes sense that this society is built completely of nulls versus primes. Like, there has to be some sort of, like, middle. Uh, the kinds of people who are respected can have babies because maybe they have those genes, even if they're not actually, you know, expressing uh, yeah. my blood. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think I think it's a good point to to answer your question from before about Gabriel. I think that he has been delivering babies to Gabriel. I do not think this is the first one. Yeah. Well, what is Gabriel doing with? I mean, he's raising an army. Gabriel has experience raising a bunch of babies. Yeah, he's like a dad, <laughs> a dad who murders his babies. Yeah, but I think he's done with that. Uh, and I think he's you know like she's saying raising an army. But yeah. I don't think he thinks of them as an army. I think he thinks of them as as a family of refugees. Yeah. Um, but I also, just to go back to this other question you just raised, um, which I've now completely forgotten. What does he do with them? You say he's raising an army. No, no, no. I was off the Gabriel train. Now okay. I'm talking about, <laughs> you had mentioned something else about Josephine. Uh, I mentioned a lot of things eh, about Josephine. It's okay. We'll go, we'll go forward. <laughs> um, just a brief note here too, as we're talking about Gabriel, that if Gabriel is still alive, which we've been led to believe that he is, he would be 101 right now in his last host's body. Um, if he's Xavier, <laughs> then he's clearly not 101, and that would be because of the anomaly, I'm sure. Uh, but we don't know yet. I'm sure we'll find out next episode. But until then, Gabriel ideally is very old. I mean, he's like old just because he's been through a lot of bodies, but also old because he's like 101. <laughs> I remembered what I was going to say. Oh, yeah? So you had mentioned this idea of there having to be a middle class. And yes. I completely agree with you because I think if you have a society of binary where you have primes, royalty, godly people, mm-hmm. gods, basically, um, and then you just have the other level of, let's just call them like peasants, for lack of a better word, yeah. nulls. Um, there's nothing for the nulls to aspire to, uh-huh. and they would riot. 
they would just there would be an uprising you need a middle class you see this in pretty much every society and Mm -hmm. every civilization you need a middle class for the lowest ranking hierarchy to aspire to yeah because otherwise there's no reason for them not to uprise yeah and riot so that's in a lot of ways they're brainwashed well right but okay so that's what i was gonna say yeah and i i think that you know probably Blythan and delilah's dad whose name i don't remember i think it's jay something like that i think both of them would be probably the middle class citizens yeah you know, they were able to produce the nightblood but they themselves are not nightbloods um but they did seem you know to have nicer jobs than cleaning toilets or being a guard as kind of what the sounds like the gnolls do yeah um so yeah i i, I would i would think there has to be a middle class and i I wish they would show that a little bit more, show the distinctions between each, because I'm still a little bit confused about how their society is set up. Yeah, me too. Uh, Do the Sanctum people believe, and this is something that Josephine says at the end of this last scene, that she kills Isaac, your spirit will live eternal after she kills Isaac and, Mm -hmm. like, feeds him to the trees. Do the Sanctum people believe that the trees, if they eat you, your spirit will, like, become a part of them? Um, I don't think Josephine does, but I don't think Josephine really believes anything, you know? Yeah, no, I think this is just another way to placate the populace. Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm kind of wondering more about their religion outside of the primes. Oh, yeah, Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think so, but I think that the, everything is sort of connected back to the primes. Yeah. Whereas, like, the, the oblation is serving the bloodline, you know, to honor and serve the gods, and, you know, it, the trees are a part of that. So I, I don't think they're disconnected. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. Yeah. And I, I like the idea, you know, I don't like the idea of feeding live people to the trees, especially live babies. No. But I do like that idea of, like, once people die, being fed back into the earth in some ways and becoming, you know, part of the planet circle um, of life the circle of life yeah i mean like I, that that's a very nice thought to me but yeah that's a beautiful healthy sentiment yeah. <laughs> uh, i think it's been like corrupted here for sure <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's a there's a kernel of, of like hope there yeah of 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 um positivity <laughs> so yeah so we have these like two shocking memories that really display how vile and evil Josephine is Mm -hmm. um, and how dangerous she is. It's not just that she's like a shitty person. She's a dangerous person. Yeah. um, And committing atrocious atrocious acts of violence. Um, And this is what does the trick. Like after this, Clark realizes that giving up would not be better for everyone. Nobody would be better off without her. And it would actually just be giving Josephine a means of continuing the deaths of all of these innocent people and honestly like she can't allow that and she knows that if she comes back she can help save them yeah and this is what lights a fire and sparks her and gives her the momentum and the energy to to move on Mm -hmm. and fight back which is great yeah um and i love that (laughs) with that said i am curious for me I'm not sure if this is the emotional reckoning that I wanted for Clark out of this episode. I feel like for me, I would have liked to have seen Clark find her inspiration in herself rather in needing to save other people. I would have maybe wanted to see a little bit more of Clark realizing that her self-worth, she is valid and worth saving all on her own rather than just as a tool to protect humanity. Yeah. What are your thoughts on I, this? 
<laughs> I'm really glad you brought up this question because I feel the exact same way. And I think maybe part of it was just me expecting a little bit too much from this episode, um, like a little bit too much reflection. And, you know, like you were saying, more of Clark realizing her own self-worth, like maybe there just wasn't enough time. Yeah. Um, and I still hope that, you know, we get more of that going forward. Um, but I did really want Clark to decide to keep fighting for, I mean, not just like for herself, like I want to live, but also for her to realize like I have value and yes. my people not only need me, but I want to be there for them. Yeah. I think it's important and I don't think it's self-centered or selfish to say I want to live. Yeah. It's natural and honest and pure in its own way. And I, I totally understand that this episode exists in the context of this season and they have a plot they need to service and all of these things, these revelations about Josephine and what she's doing in, with the oblation and the Knowles is critical to the plot of this season. And mm -hmm. I think it's all true and fascinating and great. And this is not to say that I don't think that this is classic Clark to be like, oh my God, there's people to save. <laughs> I gotta go. Um, that all feels very true to me. Um, I think for me though, with everything that we had heard from this season with the showrunners saying that this is going to be a, a season for Clark to be reflective and grow and, and come out the other side. If this is supposed to be that sort of like episode where all of that happens, mm -hmm. then I'm not sure that they executed it to the extent that they, they meant to. Yeah. I don't know if it was as successful as they thought it was. I, I loved the conclusions we reached with the scene with Monty earlier um, about what doing better means to Clark. Yeah. Um, I also know that, you know, they only have so much time. And if it were me, like I had said at the beginning, I wasn't joking. I really feel like this episode could have been like a two hour long episode. Oh, for sure. To like really hammer in the emotional stuff alongside the like more plot driven stuff like Josephine's memories. Um, I am not ready to give up yet on the writers. I think it's likely that we'll see more of Clark's reflection going forward. I'm now kind of thinking that Clark might not come back until the end of this season. You know, I thought before that we'd get her back earlier, but maybe now we don't. Maybe we really see her inside her own head reflecting on this until like the last couple of episodes, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we never really know. <laughs> show keeps us on our toes. Well, what's interesting for me this season is it's the first season of The 100 in a really long time where I have no idea, you know, what's going to happen. You know, like at the end of last season, I thought it was likely they would go to a new planet. I talked about it a lot. Yeah. At the end of season four, I was pretty sure the Allegis people were coming back. I talked yeah. about that a lot. Yeah. Um, at the end of season three, I think I was just ready for the show to be over. <laughs> just, just that season to be over. I needed a break. But, you know, like it's been a little while since I really didn't know what was coming. And that's very exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. And it's a testament to how strong the writing is this season. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, yes. Just got a little bit left. Yep. Monty and Clark go into Josephine's darkest memory and they find themselves on Earth before the first apocalypse. Josephine is studying with a friend when a boy, Dave, tries to talk to her. Josephine brushes him off, as it's clear she's been doing for a while, and Dave ends up killing himself in front of her. Monty hides as the current Josephine shows up and kicks Clark out of her mind, saying that Clark has just doomed her people by invading Josephine's mind. Then Josephine wakes up, ending their fight. So, 
this is honestly like a very, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this scene, but kind of just from the very beginning, it felt like such a different take for the show because we have never seen the earth before the apocalypse. No, This yeah. is the very first time we're seeing it. And it is clear that there's something going on on earth right now. Um, we do see a magazine with Dioza, you know, showing Dioza having been caught. And we know Dioza was fighting some sort of rebellion. Honestly, I still don't know the, the details of it, but she has like a beautiful mugshot. She really does. She was smizing in that mugshot so hard. She's like a freaking model. <laughs> Go back and look. <laughs> Um, there are water rationing protests going on. It's apparently too dusty for Josephine and her friend Olivia to want to be outside. Um, so th- this is, you know, sounding like we're really in the middle of some hard times on Earth, you know, maybe because of global warming. <laughs> Just a thought. But also politically. Um, and this is also very close to the final apocalypse. So this is what Allie herself was seeing uh, happen around her. And, you know, this is what led to her making that decision to kill everyone. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting insight into yeah. what the landscape of Earthwood's like. Yeah. Do you think that we're ever going to explore this on the show? Or do you think this is Jason Rothenberg just trying to set up his prequel story? You like a backdoor pilot? Game? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, I think that. I... I'm not sure. I'm like 50-50. I'm 50% of thinking we're going to get Dio's backstory at some point at least. I still am holding out hope. No, I'm not even going to talk about Kat again. (laughs) (laughs) Not that not today. I saw your face when like going in that direction. I was like, don't say it. (laughs) Don't say it. Um, So there's 50% of you who thinks that we really need that information now to understand, especially Dio's as a character. But there's another 50% of me that thinks, you know, he's going to just do this all in the prequel. And if it ever happens, um, we can read it or see it there. Uh, And I don't know. I mean, I'm still not 100% down on the idea that they might do time travel now that they've announced the anomaly and the anomaly has time crazy powers. I like him deeply not on the time travel I am train. deeply not on the time travel chain. That. I don't want it at all. I don't think that the answer to suffering is to undo it um, all the time. But I could see them going in that direction. But that's that for is another neither time. here nor there. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, I also did want to call out uh, this nice little Easter egg with Becca on the cover of a magazine. Yeah. Which... Also, maybe Backdoor Pilot could be about Becca. Who knows? I went on a little deep dive, like, spiral of theorizing when I saw the front cover and it said the Franco file, um, which was clearly the cover story. And I had Becca Becca and I was like, what is the Franco file? What does this mean? This is, like, clearly very important. And Britt was like, what's Becca's last name? And I looked up and it was Franco. And I was like, oh. (laughs) It was honestly really disappointing because I was really excited for, you know, something new which is like so emblematic of the way that we think about things like sarah looks at something and she's like what does it mean what are all the possibilities and i'm just like what if it's just this like thing that's staring you right in the face (laughs) well also i had thought before it could be like her last name but then i thought that i recognized becca's last name because i've definitely looked at her wikipedia her like uh fanpedia page before Wiki? wiki yes thank you um and i did not recognize franco so I just assumed that that wasn't right. I didn't feel like I had to look it up. So. All right. <laughs> Love Becca. Yeah. I was going to say, let's get into the, the, the meat of this. Yes. Um, so in this scene, it is clear that this version of Josephine has slightly more humanity and empathy than the current Josephine that we know and love 
does. Um, the boy, this boy Dave, is obviously mentally ill. He's got some issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she she's wary of him, but she doesn't seem to want to hurt him. And it's clear that his suicide is deeply traumatic and traumatizing to her. Of course. Um, so I think it's important to note that this version of Josephine is not the Josephine that we know. Mm-hmm. In, not completely. Yeah, I mean, let, let's break this down. I mean, first off, the Josephine we know right now, like we said, has a lot of sociopathic tendencies. Whether she could be categorized as an actual sociopath is, you know, a different question. But it is true that people don't become sociopaths. Right. Um, in you know, in, in our real world. That in, a, said, in like a textbook definition. Yeah, that said, we don't know what happens if you live like seven different lifetimes. You know, we don't know what would happen to your consciousness if it keeps being copied onto a hard drive, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that we can't quite lean on modern science to describe what Josephine is um, and what she has become. But I think that in her first life, we would I would not categorize her as a sociopath. No. I think definitely selfish. For sure. Um, and self-concerned. And immature. And immature. Um, but not a sociopath in that sense. That said, I honestly don't know what else this memory is really trying to tell us about Josephine. I, this is kind of the one part of this episode that I was like, why? <laughs> why, why is this here? Why is this the memory she can't face? Like, I, I just... It seems like it's like this thing that's used for shock value in a way that I can't quite quantify. Okay. What like what are your thoughts about how this scene fits into Josephine's personality and, and backstory? So I think first and foremost what I was saying is true. I think that they needed to find an example of her pre um, reincarnation and honestly pre sanctum tr- mission trip to show us what kind of human she was. Yeah. Um, and she's very human here. You know, she's studying with her friends. She's, you know, I think politically engaged and very intelligent, it seems. Uh, and sure, she's selfish, but she's still human. She is quite clearly what we are familiar with as human. Mm-hmm. And I think this scene, and I mean, it's it's interesting for somebody who doesn't feel things and for somebody who does not seem to be able to connect with her fellow humans, the idea of her hiding away this traumatic moment where she was still an emotional being, maybe not as emotionally intuitive as some people, but she still has emotions. Yeah. Um, when she was experiencing this trauma of this suicide, I think it I think it, it has two different bearings of importance. I think the first is that this is probably the moment where she started to shut down emotionally and to disconnect. I think this is not something as a young person that you can experience and then without a lot of serious help and therapy and even then I'm not sure if you can ever really process this Mm -hmm. and it makes sense to me that somebody who is not interested in doing emotional work would rather just become numb than try and work through this pain and grief and any kind of accountability for it. Yeah. Um, And also I think this moment is very emblematic of what triggered her decision to move 
and yes. go to Sanctum. That is for sure. She was let it, ready to let her parents, like, basically leave her forever um, before this scene occurred. Yeah, but I think instead of looking at it in those terms, like, she was ready to leave her family behind, I think what it means is that she she sees something in Earth that is powerful to her. She has friends here. She has a life here that she doesn't want to leave behind. And sure, but I'm saying it takes a lot to like actively say goodbye to your family forever. Of you know what I mean? Of course it does. Yeah, but I think what I think is different is that instead of her, instead of it being like her family was like, we're going to go on this space mission and like colonize the new moon and like do all this crazy shit. And she's just like, I am on board with this because I don't have any ties to humanity here. And I am ready for an adventure where I can do all of these amazing things. In this scenario that they're presenting, she's not doing that. She's running away. Um, she's hiding from mm-hmm. this and leaving it behind and starting a whole new adventure where she doesn't have to be human. She doesn't have to feel these things. She can be a god. Um, and so this is important in two different ways. One, in her in the emotional sense of her starting to disconnect and shut down and also significant in what it means to her in the second phase of her many, many very, very long life. And that's why I think it's here. I don't disagree with you at all. I think that you're right. Um, first and foremost, I want to say Josephine is not at all at fault for what Dave did. Oh, does. sure. Like, there is some like serious toxic masculinity going on first and foremost about her like owing him her attention because he's nice to her. Yeah. Um, and there's also a lot of mental health issues that this scene brings up. But I'm like still having a hard time reconciling what you're saying with what it almost seems like this scene is saying, which is that Josephine is really callous with people's emotions and then this happens and then she becomes even more callous. Like, I know the show isn't trying to say that, but with the way, with the kind of scene they just chose to be Josephine's cornerstone memory, it still feels like it's a leap for me to go from what it's showing to what you're saying, which I agree is what they probably wanted this scene to say. Sure. Um, I, I just feel like there could have been a way to do this that wasn't, number one, a suicide used for shock value, and number two, that it, it wasn't something where the blame for a less emotionally intuitive person could be placed on Josephine in some ways. Yeah. Um, I see what you're saying. I think it's an interesting choice. I agree with you that the shock value of this is sticky. Um, And yeah, I think we can, I think we can, you know, come on either side of how successful this scene works overall and what they're trying to convey. I do think what I said is what they are ultimately trying to get with. I agree. I'm not as convinced like you that it was successful at doing that. Um, I will say that Dave, that the character or the actor who plays Dave is supposed to come back for um, the final episode this season. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's going to be just kind of flashing back to this memory here or if we're going to get a little bit more about Dave and about how Josephine feels about this this memory. Um, I hope it's the latter because I do still think they could make this work if they connected it a little bit more throughout the rest of the season to Josephine and her development past this moment. Yeah. Um, but I personally feel like if they don't do any more work with this scene, then it just doesn't quite sit right for me. Yeah. It does fall a little flat. 
and I'm I'll be honest like when I watched it I was like why are we watching this yeah um and it took me a long time to like parse through why I think this exists here yeah I mean I really like what you said and I'm yeah like I honestly I'm not able to parse it out myself so I'm glad you did because I am still kind of stuck on my feelings about it yeah um but I do think that you put it into context in a way that I could be okay with if they do a little bit more work on that front. Sure. Um, but moving on from that, Josephine, our like current Josephine shows up and throws Clark out of her mind. And like, <laughs> she's such a hypocrite because she goes into Clark's mind, runs her fingers along every freaking wall and every freaking memory. And then Clark comes into hers and suddenly she's furious, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's, I mean, I know that she's, you know, her. She but. is, but I think it's another example. And I think it's an important example of, like, A, how emotionally immature she is. Mm-hmm. And B, how she views other people. Yeah. As objects. They are things for her to play with. It's absolutely okay for her to go into someone else's space and play and toy with them. But it's not okay for them to do it with her. Yeah. Which is important. I think, you know, all of these beats are, are an important uh portrait of who she is yeah and I appreciate them putting that in there Josephine heads into the dining room when Bellamy is meeting with Russell to plan the building of their new compound while she waits Bellamy notices that her finger is tapping on her arm and then we flash to Clark and Monty sending Morse code out through the Christmas lights and Josephine's worst memory Bellamy realizes what he's seeing and rushes out of the room and then reveals to Miller that Clark is still alive in Josephine and they're going to get her back Okay, so first of all, Bellamy knows and I can breathe again. What a deeply deep sigh of relief. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, if we had to deal with another episode of Bellamy thinking Clark was dead, I was going to not make it. I just want someone to be, like, actively trying to help her. I don't like this, like, going on without her, you know? Yeah, no. I, like, I needed him to know she was alive. Um, But before we get the reveal, uh, we can see how devastated Bellamy is. Uh, as he's talking to Russell he is just he's so defeated he is barely present um, when he's talking with Russell and he's just like spending all of his energy just to get through this exercise I mean he he is there physically but he is not there in I you agree know, with you mentally, but I also can't get over how much of a nerd he is that he like brings a notebook and he's like taking notes in this meeting. Like he just like he's such a he's such a nerd. I know. I love a, it. He's such a nerd. <laughs> um. So let's be real here. I'm not sure. I believe that Bellamy would have noticed her tapping on her arm, especially after like two taps. Yeah. Uh, and him being able to realize that it's Morse code. Yeah. Um, it seems like a bit of a stretch for me, but I'll take it first off because I want Bellamy to know. And second off, because I do think that Bellamy has always been very aware of Clark, um, whenever she's near or, you know, at least Clark's body yeah. <laughs> in this situation. Yeah. Her physicality. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so I think that that, you know, kind of plays into this scene about him being aware of her even though it's not really her anymore right but Um, he can't disassociate right yeah but you know I think it's a stretch it stretches believability (laughs) I will agree I I was like wow that was fast yeah Um, I, I wish they had really given just a few more beats to this scene of first off Bellamy like staring at her trying to realize what he's seeing yeah. Um. For a few more seconds, because he like figures out it's Morse code very quickly. I mean, like he doesn't even need any time to figure yeah. out what's happening. He just 
knows. Yeah. I, I, I would like to see him process that before he knows. Yeah. And then I would also like to, like, spend a little bit more time after he, like, figures out what she's trying to say, reckoning with the fact that, like, oh, my God, Clark is alive. Yeah, this is a <laughs> huge realization. Yeah. And he just kind of is like, okay. He just flips really quickly. And he's like, Clark's alive. We're going to save her. And yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, alrighty then. Are you not <laughs> going to break down about this? Yeah. Like, uh, okay, good. Um, real quick, one little tiny note is that I love the Christmas lights invention that they use here. <laughs> I feel like Clark must have watched a lot of Stranger Things reruns. Yeah. I, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Just it a was nice great. little uh, merging of two big fandoms yep. right there. I loved it. <laughs> um, my question is, did Clark get lucky that Bellamy just happened to be there when she was sending out this message? Or is there like some way she can tell when Josephine, you know, is around people and who she's around and what she's doing? I, I don't know. Well, I feel like... Was Clark just like sending Morse code throughout like hours and hours and finally someone saw it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I feel like we don't have time like in the timeline of the show for her to be picky about who she's doing this with. Yeah. You but, know? but like honestly, I'm not sure if anyone bar maybe Raven, anyone else would know Morse code. Sure. Maybe Murphy. Maybe. I doubt it. I highly doubt it. Highly doubtful. But, you know, he's he's surprises you. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, not in this way. But... Yeah, I, I honestly think she just got really lucky, which feels like a little bit of a cheat. Another stretch. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of cheating for the show. Yeah. Um, But we're going to go with it because I ultimately like where we ended up here. <laughs> I will say if we had to spend any more time in this episode, I would have preferred them to keep the time spent in Clark's mind than to keep it spent here in this final yeah. scene. I appreciate the um how shrift they were with, yeah. this, with <laughs> this part. It's true. Um, Yeah. And I think it's really lucky that Bellamy is such a fucking nerd and obsessed with Clark <laughs> that he, like, noticed her movements in the first time and then also was like, great, I know Morse code. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, aside from the fact that maybe Raven might be the only other person who knows Morse code, um, no one else but Bellamy would be that attuned to Clark's body movements no. that they would notice that. Literally no, no one else. Right. It's so just again, Bellamy. She just got super lucky. Yeah. Uh, I will say that Pike in season three had mentioned that Clark was one of his best Earth students um, or Earth skills students, mm -hmm. which I, I think was really nice tie in here that like if Clark was one of the best Earth skills students, then she would have known Morse code and Bellamy was clearly a good one, too. Yeah. Um, and so like that is why they both know Morse code and can use it and communicate. And I just I love it. And vice versa. It's <laughs> yeah. a super cute callback. To the flashback of Miller sleeping through Earth skills. Because at least he admits it. He's like, I slept through it. And, like, we saw that. Which yeah. is adorable. <laughs> um, did, for me, I have to say, Miller's stare down of Josephine at the end. And, like, Russell, too. But really, Josephine. It kind of made me forgive him for everything he did in season five. <laughs> I was, like, so just proud of him staring down Josephine and like giving her the stink eye in this moment it just felt like very much like he was on Bellamy's team and he was on Clark's team and just like I don't like you I, I really appreciated it I deeply appreciated it too and it definitely like gave him a lot of points yeah back <laughs> uh I'm not sure that he's like totally out of the red for me yeah. I'm really mad at him it clearly takes very little for me so. <laughs> <laughs> but it it's went a long way yeah he's he's better 
Um, and then finally, do we think the rest of Sky Crew is going to believe Bellamy when he tells them that Clark is alive because he saw her tapping out Morse code on her arm? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is like a paranoia level to this where it, it seems like the obvious response would be, Bellamy, you're losing your mind. Yeah. And I would appreciate if the show dedicated a couple of beats for, for them to be hesitant to believe him. I think that is the most believable reaction and the reaction that makes the most sense. I don't know if the show is actually going to do that. I mean, we saw as Bellamy was walking away, Miller did not seem convinced that Clark was alive. He actually looked a little bit worried for Bellamy. He did. I think that Echo would believe Bellamy immediately. Immediately. Um, because that's kind of the person she is, and she has a lot of faith in Bellamy and his capabilities. You know, well-placed. Yeah. Um, Raven, I don't think she's going to believe it right off the bat. I don't think Murphy's Murphy going is to not believe gonna... it. You know, Maury, I'm kind of up in the air about. So, so I don't know. I, I think that... Definitely, we should get some pushback maybe from Murphy, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll I'm, see. I'm excited. To, I'm uh, very see. excited for the next episode. <laughs> okay, let's get into some of our discussion points. Uh, title meanings in this episode. Episode is called Nevermind, um, and there are a few ways in which I think that this is interesting um, for this episode. The first is, you know, the word Nevermind literally means to forget. And for an episode fixated on memory and what you choose to remember, what you choose to forget is perfect. Yeah. Um, also means leave me alone. And you tell someone, never mind, you're telling them essentially to drop it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is absolutely right for an episode that is about someone invading someone else's ma- mind and trying to get them out. Yeah. Both Clark and Josephine is perfect. But I think most importantly... This is a callback to the season three Mm -hmm. episode, um, Nevermore, also written by Kim Shumway, who is wonderful. Um, And both of these episodes were dedicated to sort of this fixation, um, this focus on characters being forced to face their inner selves and reckon with what they've done. Yeah. Um, It really feels like, you know, the other half a bookend to that episode mm-hmm. in a beautiful, symmetrical way. I mean, you're missing the most obvious one, which is that it has mind in the title. Oh, well, I mean, that's so <laughs> obvious that I, I didn't I mean, like, get bared If it mentioning. does, I mean, never mind, but it takes place entirely in, in, in your, your mind. mind. Yes. I, you know, I yes. think that's a big part of it, too. Okay, fine. <laughs> I was like, that felt too obvious to me, but sure. Yes, that too. Uh, sometimes obvious things need to be stated, too. That's fair. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> our favorite lines. This was a hard one. This was so hard, you guys. <laughs> what was yours? My favorite line was when Josephine asks her why she's doing this. Josephine asks Clark why she's doing this. And Clark says, you know, I want you to lose and I will find a way to survive. I always do. Because it really was, first and foremost, us getting back our Clark, the Clark we know and love. Um, the one who really does always find a way to survive. And it also is about Clark finding her determination again. And I, I really, really liked that. Yeah, it was excellent. And that was honestly my favorite line. But for the sake of picking <laughs> another one, I will go with Monty's line um, when he's talking to her, which is a very long, long line. But I'll just I'll just pick out these like two nuggets, which is this is about being the good guys. And then at the end, he says the ends don't justify the means because I think it's a perfect encapsulation of what this show is about. You know, this is if you strip everything away, this is about being good. And this is about asking yourself why you why what what is worth sacrificing to be good yeah what's your favorite scene um my favorite scene is 
this was also really hard. I mean, because to to be fair, like this entire episode was perfect. My favorite scene. This entire episode is my, <laughs> my favorite, favorite scene. scene. <laughs> it's very hard to pick. But if you have to pick, what I, is it? If I had to pick the scene where Monty first appears to like put the emotional smackdown on Clark, really, really hit deep for me. Yeah, that was very cathartic, and I loved that yeah. scene. What I about loved you? Loved that scene. Um, I think mine was the flashbacks to Josephine's memories and then Clark's ultimate decision to save herself in order to save the others. This just felt like a perfect um, ending to Uh this journey in her mind. And I loved getting these little glimpses into Josephine. Um, I really needed them to understand her. Yeah. She's like kind of an enigma until now. And now I feel like I've really got her on lock. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I really deeply appreciated those moments. Yeah. You know, in, in many ways, this episode showed us just as much about Josephine as it showed us about Clark. Sure. Um, which was also needed because she, I guess is going to be the main villain of this season. I I think. I mean, it would seem so. Yeah. I mean, like that seems to be the direction that we're heading in. So. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about next episode? Yeah, let's move on. So next episode is 608, The Old Man and the Anomaly. In this episode, Octavia and Dioza make their way to the mysterious anomaly in search of the old man. And meanwhile, Murphy has an offer for Amori. Um, So I've been very excited for this episode just because I'm really into this anomaly. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to find out more about it. I can't wait to find out more about what Gabriel is doing, if he's Xavier, if he's 101 years old right now. And this trio. I'm so excited to spend time with this trio. The trio is great. I'm really excited to see what Amori thinks about what Murphy's been doing lately because I don't think she'll be happy. No. Um, so yeah, I mean, this sounds like a great episode and we also know that Bellamy now knows Clark's alive. So we're going to be starting that fight. There's still the whole Shade Hedda thing to work out. I don't yeah. know how that fits in, but we're going to have to fit it in somehow. So excited. So there's a lot. There's a lot to come still. Did Bob direct this episode? No, Bob directed 611. Okay. I just wanted to keep track of that. Yeah. Okay. Which is Echo's backstory episode. Oh my God. Yeah. So excited. (laughs) Yes. Might be my favorite after this. Who knows? We'll see. (laughs) Um, Okay, guys. That's our episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That is S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast. And you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And that is our episode. So until next time, may we meet again. May we meet again. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.